Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. This is the thing that I do every once in a while when I'm not doing other things at Freethink. And I want to to tell you, dear friends, that if you find yourself engaged in a, a, a firefight at any point in the future, stay low and keep firing. Wow. What? It's just good advice. Good I advice just, that I offered to Michael Moynihan. We all just perked up. Advice News. Matt Welch, editor-at-large for Reason Steve Magazine. Our friend yeah. Anthony Fisher. <laughs> I thought he moved down. Who does Best things style. at Insider. <laughs> What's that shit that Joe Rogan does? DMT. DMT. I'm praying. I'm praying and hoping that you guys do actually get the reference. I don't. I'm hoping. No, I don't. Was it from Sergeant York? Keep extra clips for extra shit. Oh, that's something I don't understand yeah, because of my cultural hip hop things. <laughs> Your cultural deficiencies, I think, is the, phrase, yeah. is the phrase you're looking Maybe for. Maybe Wesley Morris can write a yeah. piece about it. Yeah, I'm sorry for you guys. But that said, it's Friday evening. We're recording again on a Friday evening, and yeah. I feel I feel spectacular. How do you guys feel? Well, it's a Friday evening, mm-hmm. right? Do you say yeah. morning or evening? Evening. Evening. I, think I said evening. And and mm-hmm. and there's no place I'd rather be than here with you fucking guys. I believe that. I love being in this this small room yeah. with a bunch of dudes. You're trying yeah. to do the thing yeah. where you're sarcastic, but I actually know I, how important this is to yeah. you. Yeah. And I know how you feel yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk and about love fun Mises next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For a couple hours and then and all the chicks will come. Yeah. Good guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm 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 Have taking you cuz I don't I don't inhabit that world. And Matt's always coming back um, from some <laughs> some crazy conference or another. He's like, oh, I was just speaking at the uh, Connecticut uh, Li- Liberty Network function or something. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah, no, it's up there in, in New Haven. And I ask you this. Have you ever, like, what is the percentage of male to female? Because, you know, we worry about, you know, you know, girls who code. Is there, do you, being inside of this movement, Matt, do you worry that there are not enough women who libertarian? Interesting to put it that way. First of all, because you have to know that the uh, Connecticut Libertarian Action Network yeah. uh, uh, always contains a bunch of Fifth Column fans. So you got to be no, real. I know that's great, but they're all dudes. Uh, some of them are some of them are chicks. No, it's never happened. Some of them are that are not our wives uh, uh, are, uh, are are fans of it. No, and they, and they uh, and they ask for selfies. Uh, the Libertarian world, writ large, like a lot of. Uh, like the Green Party world, also yeah. a- any marginal uh, kind of uh, political grouping, especially the most, m- the more that it's a political party rather than an intellectual movement, is going to have uh, more white dudes disproportionately than the rest of the country. I, I noticed this for the first time. There's actually academic literature about it. I've talked to mm-hmm. some people who've done it. A guy uh, I noticed this in the on the Nader campaign in 2000. He would go every he would go to East St. Louis. And there wouldn't be any black people in the audience. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and he was, you know, he, that's yeah. the year that he was selling out arenas and all this kind of uh, stuff. But he, but. A lot of strip uh, clubs there, by the uh, way. Uh, hmm. it's, uh, uh, wouldn't looking at me when you say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about that. Well, I, 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 don't, I didn't say you did. I was looking at you because I know you're interested in stuff like that. Uh, strip clubs? Yeah. 
I, I, really? I don't because know Tracy about listens to this. You don't want to talk about it? No, I don't know what Dude, you're talking about. The second we leave every time, you're like, let's go. <laughs> I got, like, you literally pay for everything in dollars. And I'm like, why? That's true. And you're like, because like, I have to have change. It's the most efficient currency yeah. you can carry. Yeah, no, yeah. you can't throw coins. You guys realize exactly that right. our, our go-to. Well, you can throw coins. You can't throw coins. rude. Our go-to after bar that we've been to a thousand times here, yeah. which we won't mention. Um, um, tipsy McStaggers. <laughs> tipsy McStaggers <laughs> is like literally right next to a strip club. Is it yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. Flash dances right there. No, that's a really? lie. Really? Seriously? It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And we've never uh, even, you haven't well, you even could, noticed it. Wait, wait. You can't mention the name of the bar, but Fisher There's mentioned several the flash name dances of the city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. see, I didn't even know. I grew up around here. You know, he's, he's a, he's <laughs> or am I feigning He's the research, so he's good. should know these things. Okay. I think probably as an overall percentage, it's disproportionately dudes, but I can't help but notice that among libertarian organizations, and that includes Libertarian Party, it certainly includes Reason, IHS, Mercatus, a lot of uh, women leadership. I mean, reason is the New Republic has never had a non-white male editor, as far as I know, unless mm-hmm. you count Gabriel Snyder as somehow not white. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Do you? I don't know. I don't. I actually don't. I know Gabriel; he's a friend. I, I don't yeah. know how he describes himself. Um, but uh, uh, they've never had a female editor. Reasons had three, four. I don't know, lost count. Well, it, it is funny that that um, of just the, like for instance, MSNBC. There was a point at which someone realized in one of the posters of MSNBC that this kind of tub thumping liberal network, um, which talked about race quite frequently and talked about these sorts of, you know, inequities and, and, um, you know, wealth gap and all the time, looked at this poster and it was just a bunch of like white guys and a couple of white women. And so somewhere, and I'm just, I don't know if this is true. I'm just going to say that it's true because it sounds, it sounds like it probably is. <laughs> but there was a meeting one time and somebody pointed this out. Like we're getting, getting a little shit for this. And they were like, who? And somebody was like, I don't know, Al Sharpton? No, I can't get him. I, I guess. I mean, that's the one guy I can think of. Here's and a, they gave the guy a show. And it, by the way, I believe it's still on. Yeah, on it's the on weekends. weekends. I go on sometimes. Yeah. It is. It is. I've seen him coming out of the studio. That's right. He, yeah. He's here in the building. Yeah, I saw. I saw him. I wanted to ha- talk to him. Half the same body that he used to have. Yeah. Sits, I'll tell you a couple things. In this very chair, in fact, about Does that. Uh, yeah, my chair. Uh, no, he's he's going to find that fucking guy that attacked him on a brawl. What they discovered <laughs> in that chair, Sharpton's show, which has never been uh, what you would describe as you know a super editorially scintillating. Um, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, I don't mean that in any disrespect. I actually like going on on a show and think it's just you know production values. It's not a it's not a, a, a zingy show. But what they noticed, and I know a lot of MSNBC people, um, he did something that hadn't been done on cable news before audience wise. His audience brought more non-white and specifically black audience to cable news because that had traditionally been almost entirely white. Like a lot of you know, opinion magazines, every opinion magazine with the exception of Mother Jones, their uh, audience uh, are white dudes who are 50. They're, it's mm-hmm. me, um, uh, sadly. Uh, You're 50? I'm 51. Dude. Are you really? Yeah, I turned 51. Is that me? I, I think you've turned 50 recently. Uh, I thought I, I uh, kind of knew that. Yeah. Wow. It's better not to talk about birthdays, Michael. What? I don't, I don't what about that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so like he, he brought in a black audience and, and they noticed. And uh, I think that contributed to uh, having the Melissa Harris Perry show on, on weekends um, where she had uh, a large number of black guests and talk a lot about what you might describe as black issues or, or not. Actually, she would sort of uh, just have a more uh, colored 
uh, uh, display of people. I was frequently the only white dude or white or male on the panels there. And, um, and it brought a different audience and also brought like different emphases on certain issues that were pre- pretty good. Some of the conversation was terrible. Some of that, you know, Camille would, would uh, certainly vomit all over, over the, the set. Uh, and some <laughs> of it was actually good and interesting. And I met all kinds of people who I had no idea before, like Jelani Cobb, you know, who I think he's mm-hmm. a pretty good writer and, and, uh, and some mm-hmm. other people who has expressed interest in coming on the show. Yeah. We should have him on. Okay. Good. Uh, good. Uh, from the New Yorker. Yeah, so been a good week. For him, like, actually. uh, like I, I think that they realized that they could tap into something a little bit here in addition to being embarrassed by, oh, we're all just Lawrence O'Donnell and popping veins in our forehead and talking yeah. about how we're the, the, yeah. or Ed Schultz. Right? Ed, he died. <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah. yeah. R. I. P. After working he for RT. Yeah. He died in, I think he died in, in Novo Sibirsk or something, <laughs> trying to get like a hungry man dinner in the middle of the night. <laughs> Found him in a snowbank. <laughs> oh, it's not shouting. that far from the he, truth. Well, he used to, he used to <laughs> yeah. be like a, he used, wasn't he like a, a right-wing radio host in, like, North Dakota or South he, Dakota or something? He was a right-wing populist and yeah. became a left-wing, like, lunch pail union. Yeah, it was, like a, it was like a... I think a, it's lunch a bucket. Union, yeah, yeah. lunch bucket. Lunch yeah. Yeah. pail? Lunch pail seems like a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's funny, it's funny, like, when I, I saw this... You don't need right? I think I, I think I sent this to Camille, that I was CNN that was talking about having a show... Uh, a panel show that was um, all black. Yeah. Yeah. April Ryan. April Ryan, who, by the way, no one had ever, let's be honest, no one had ever heard of prior to the Trump administration. I mean, I I knew April, but only, I told you the story about how I went to the White House Correspondents Dinner in April Stead as a member of the press pool. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah right. But no, she wasn't like, stuff. I mean, she wasn't we're, like, we're a Helen, she's becoming like a Helen Thomas type figure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But now, I mean, no one had ever heard of her before. I mean, it's, it's not like, I think it's urban radio network it's where April radio has network, been yeah. for years, yeah, yeah. like as this, this fixture, which again, yeah. I don't know any radio stations on urban radio network. I don't know. Yeah. CNN has helped bring her to prominence. But it's, it's funny that, that when I saw that, I was, of course, slightly offended by it just because, you know, I don't I just don't like and it's not an ideological thing. I just don't like this. The the ever growing segregation of everything in America from, you know, if you look back in the 1960s and you you want you watch a love like a video of Arthur Lee in love. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, there used to be like black people playing rock music and white people playing soul music. And it was all sort of intertwined. And you don't see that very much anymore when you do. It's kind of a novelty. It's re- I mean, it was even that was even the case when like Living Color came out. Right. right. Hmm. It was like, oh, my God, a black rock band. And like, oh, an ice tea did body count. Like, oh, my God, really? It's like people were shocked by it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, guys, you forget Jimi Hendrix. But so the, 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 this further kind of bifurcation of culture is just it kind of mm-hmm. exists in the sense that like I never and, and this is honest to goodness this is true and you can if you're in new york city test this out if when you see people reading on the train and i see this all the time and the person is black they're always reading a black theme book never i've, really? ne- I, I've never not seen it otherwise honestly at this point I, i've never I, not I, seen it otherwise. for me I, most honestly, new yorkers seem to be reading racially themed books it's a lot isn't it i yeah. don't i mean I, I, i'm not saying that this is a bad thing i don't know what yeah. the books are but it's just so cnn when i saw that I my instinct was to be like come on really let's not further but then from a business perspective i realized well yeah well that's kind of how the market is these days although all the the people on it like bakari sellers who i actually kind of like although he's a, he can be kind of a democratic uh, uh hackish type of person but it, <laughs> none of them none of them seem like they would disagree with one another no you know, about really anything of substance right and and that seems to be kind of a category error 
Um, you know, like uh, the uh, a thing that I appreciate about uh, the Melissa Harris Perry show um, is that they kind of wanted to have a conversation, including with people like she wanted to talk with me about how her conception of rights were about positive rights and mine were about negative rights. Hmm. Like, she, let's talk about that for 20 minutes. Also with someone from the NAACP and somebody else. And let's have like a thoroughgoing uh, exchange about that. I'm not sure that's where they're going to be uh, on this on this show. Right. Yeah. Well, it's uh, how, how vociferous can your denunciations be? I mean, you can have a conversation test there as well and uh, someone listening might might suggest that we all agree with one another on some important I, I don't think material we do, actually. I, I think well. at least two, Particularly when two we of the three Trump of us either yeah. yeah. still think that's true black. too <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know which two Matt's still trying yeah. to pull you over all the time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know it's funny because we can, this is kind of a, a pivot to what we, we, we said we were going to talk about in a way is that um, I think that one of the things that, that terrifies me about this stuff is that the second, I mean, totally frank, and, and, and this is 100% true, is the second this comes up, I was even nervous. I was just caught myself being nervous saying that when I see black people on train, they tend to be, not tend to be, I don't think I've ever seen someone not reading a sort of black themed book, whether by, by a black author, mm-hmm. whether it's even a black romance novel. I see that quite frequently. Um, I'm nervous about even saying that. I don't know what I'm doing these days because everything is a landmine. What previously appeared to be a paving stone is now going to blow my leg off. And so I'm nervous about this. So I've noticed this with this New York times thing. We can talk about the New York times 1619 project. Mm. Um, I've noticed that the only people that you tend to see dissenting about just the general premise of this and the theme of this, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm not seeing this, but I see it a lot of from like people like Eric Erickson and these like right-wing radio hosts who just don't care and have nothing to lose. But I know that Sata Voce, a lot of people um, that I know um, who are smart and some of whom are historians and some of whom just know this stuff very well, say, yeah, hang on a minute. But when you say something about it to them, they tell, I, this is, I've talked about this recently with somebody who's very, very bright and they say they don't want to talk about it publicly. I mean, the, the New York Times, the August New York Times, the paper of record, is making a claim in the beginning of this 1619 project that everything that happened in the United States um, that is worth a damn sprung from um, stolen black labor. And the, the, the thing is not to say that none of that is true. It's just saying they're saying that all of it is true. Right? Every, everything that makes the United States exceptional, exceptional. is uh, a I result think. of slavery. Yes. So, yes. Camille, I mean, obviously... The reason that you're here yeah. is because you're black. Just this one huh. time. Just this one time. And because, so, so and because you, you, I think you paid for the studio time. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know. Um, did, but, you write, did you write the jingle? I think you wrote the jingle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're yeah. also musical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I saw this and I sent you a few things about it and I asked you a few questions about it, about, <laughs> about academic papers that, that dispute the general, just the, the, the general premise of it. Um, and... So you've read this stuff, haven't you? I've read some of this stuff. Tell and, me what you think. And it's actually been a you pretty, can tell us what you think. It's been a, been a pretty hard slog. Well, I hope some some other people will talk as well. And I actually reached out to Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's at the New York Times, who is uh, the the... I believe this entire project is her brainchild. If nothing else, she has written the flagship piece yeah. for this project for Which the New York magazine, Times yeah. magazine. And uh, I'm looking at this this blurb about it uh, on the cover of the New York Times magazine. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on the horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal point in the British colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonies. America was not yet America. 
But this was the moment it began. No aspect of the country that would be formed here has been untouched by the 250 years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Um, the hour there, the hour there is pretty loaded, uh, yeah. and it's difficult to say exactly what it means. And you know, I I actually have to acknowledge that we I invited um, Nicole to be on the podcast. In fact, I say I we collectively have invited her to be on the podcast, and I sent her a note on Twitter. Um, I haven't received a response, uh, not a declaration we're, we're, or otherwise. We're right around the corner, uh, but I would love to have a conversation we're with right her corner, because yeah. what what I hate is the notion of just monologuing about something that she wrote and denigrating it in various ways because I found myself in violent disagreement with most of it. Um, As I mentioned to Fisher just before you guys arrived, that whenever I hear about a piece like this, um, something that is supposed to recast the conversation and help us reorient ourselves towards history as it pertains to race and slavery and and there's like this incredible groundswell. Oh my God, I've never read anything like this. This is you absolutely essential reading. There's a part of me that says, well, maybe they're right. Maybe there's something that I've overlooked all of these years where I've been, you know, generally on the other side of a lot of these issues and thought that people make much about things that they ought to, to not make so much of. And I approach reading this stuff somewhat cautiously. And I say, I'm going to really read this with an open mind to try to see if there's something here um, that perhaps I haven't considered and I need to, to take in um, and understand in order to really get what the other side is saying. And, and quite honestly, I just didn't find anything new here. Like, I didn't find anything here that was fantastically inspiring or inspired. There's some decent wordsmithing um, and it's not a terribly written piece. It's just that the ideas aren't fresh. Um, this is a part of a genre of academic literature and recent books mm-hmm. um, recasting sort of the history of America and the history of capitalism in particular. And the essence of these pieces is always the same, that America is fundamentally successful because of slavery and because of its experience with uh, trafficking and, and black bodies. Um, what I think does make this piece unique is just sort of the, the nakedness um, of its conclusion. Um, and I wanted to, I've got to actually find the concluding lines here because I, I just read it and was sort of struck again by for me personally, my perspective on this here, mm-hmm. uh, just how gross it is and just how crass it is. Like the notion that we were told once, here's, this is the passage, we were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be Americans, but it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. Mm. I think the sentiment is gross on a lot of levels. And I, I, I use the word and I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to her. I get that we're in, in pretty profound disagreement here, and it's probably impossible for me to say something like that without being offensive, but I'm, I'm being candid here. Like the notion that, that you were in bondage, our bondage collectively, um, the, the notion that you're having been in bondage makes you the most American. Uh, these are just weird, bizarre sentiments that I can't 
get behind. I can't support well, well, wouldn't, just quickly, these wouldn't, notions wouldn't at all. Wouldn't people on the other side of the aisle, on, on what is pre- presumably her side of the aisle, get upset and, and probably have gotten upset in the past when people delineate it in such a way and say, you know, we are more American, flyover country is more American, you guys are coastal elites. Uh-huh. I mean, that that has a very, very ugly yes. history. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, saying it's a somebody false, who's more just, American. But, but, but what makes it offensive for me is that it's a false dichotomy. Mm. Like the notion that either, mm-hmm. <laughs> either you are the, the gross awful scourge of America and because of your blackness you can't be fully American or because of your blackness you are now the most American mm-hmm. the, the the notion that you have to choose between those is what's always been so offensive to me about the sort of anti-racist project versus the anti-race project which is my own mm-hmm. which is the recognition that race is this ridiculous idea that what makes us uh, different from one another and what actually establishes the bonds of fraternity between human beings is this shared identity based on phenotypic traits. And in their, in their telling and this recasting, it's a shared identity based on the historic experience of some of your ancestors of some select group of your ancestors, whose particular awful, tragic story of oppression and degradation is one that you continue to have at the forefront of your mind for ever. Your print, the principal way you imagine yourself is as the progeny of someone who was taken advantage of in the United States of America. And I can't relate to that. It just seems like a profoundly unhealthy way to imagine yourself as a human I, I, being. No, I, I think that that's that's. But that's only right the beginning on, of my criticism. I, no, no, I think it's right on every. <laughs> I want to get back to it too. I think that's right on every level. Let me ask you a question though: Is that you know that offends you to your core? That idea that that's the kind of you know foundational everything, um, and is something you call back to this this oppression of of certain ancestors. What do you think the long term consequences of that being? the dominant view in schools, in academia, now in mainstream media, um, that, that, that is just how people are taught to think these days. And that is the default thought. I mean, I, I, I mean, talking to people from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years difference, this generational difference, um, black, white, et cetera, the way that people handle these things, nobody who's young that I work with thinks that the 1619 project is a bit weird. Uh-huh. They think this is completely standard. I mean, what do you think that this kind of does to people after it becomes the narrative that one cannot question or should not question yeah. or, is, or, or feels feels frightened questioning? I think it's a I think it's a great question. And I'd, I'd be interested in anyone else's perspective on it because I don't know that I have a good answer. Um, I do think there's a really interesting parallel and that when you imagine what it must have been like to be a Southerner in the South when slavery was at its peak, when you thought yourself superior mm-hmm. to the blacks who are enslaved because of your whiteness, when mm-hmm. you imagine that race kind of explained everything about the world that you inhabited um, and was essential to your sense of self-worth and identity, um, I I don't know that that particular sense of self-evaluation and evaluation of others um, was all that advantageous for the South in the long run. Um, I don't know that for a poor Southern white person who was desperately poor, didn't actually own slaves um, and lived in a society where they perhaps looked down upon slaves, that having a sense of self-esteem derived from that relationship, from that racial identity, um, 
was actually good for them. And Didn't I don't know that it was good for the South broadly. Of, of industry. Didn't I don't think create, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, there's, what, there's some, there's something about that bizarre parallel, like between that I mean, and the, there's and a, the there's sort a famous of woke paradigm that is overlooked. By uh, de Tocqueville, uh, I think, and I can't believe this is the first, I've been on this planet for 51 years. It's my first de Tocqueville reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's something that the conservatives do. I'm not a conservative. That's okay. You still just, just say wanna, de Tocqueville. Whatever. Uh, uh, but like uh, he's going along the, I forget what it is, the Ohio River, let's mm. say. And on one side of the Ohio River, the slavery, and the other side, there's not. Mm. And the way that he physically describes kind of the comportment, the style, the the uh, uh, the, the physical appearance of the white people on each side mm-hmm. um, is striking. It's just like uh, the, on on the southern side – it's things are just kind of slovenly like people uh, uh, don't uh, like these the habits of slavery do not create good habits of industry and thrift and capitalism mm-hmm. right the the uh, and part of the uh, economic historians who are pushing back against the 1619 project not like the project as a whole but like about the thesis that overlaps with it's all about king cotton um, America was slavery was uniquely horrible and uniquely fundamental to its notions and th- therefore etc um, uh, those people come back and say okay so why wasn't the south kicking the north's ass mm-hmm. uh, in in uh, economics and, and other things and I think right. they have a point I want to uh, a lot of things I want to mention about this but I'll just start with one little bit um, I think maybe what she was pointing to or what she should have been pointing to in that concluding paragraph that you found so noxious uh, but the frame that was available to her and she touches on it a little bit um, is that at various times the anti-slavery, the abolitionist uh, movement, um, the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln's involvement of it, the civil rights um, um, struggle, especially um, kind of the Martin Luther King approach to it, was about uh, – and, and this and the, Timothy Sandifer wrote about this for a reason in a very, very good essay that I commend people read um, – uh, a lot of the way that these structures of slavery were overcome were particularly by abolitionists – uh, not all of whom were black, but let's just, many of them were, um, and thinkers, many of whom were black and actors, um, who went back and used the documents of the American founding, used the promissory note of the Declaration of Independence to say you have to stop Jim Crow because you said it right there. You people, you flawed people, you said all men are created equal and we're going to hold you up to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that all men are created equal bit is worthwhile like mm-hmm. it was worthwhile as a tool it's a worthwhile concept it was more radical it was more they knew at the time that it was more of a promise than they could they could deliver mm-hmm. uh, and so um there's i think some of the conservative uh perhaps overreaction to this that's been caricatured by a lot of people mm-hmm. uh, is that, oh, my God, if you're, you're calling into question the entire uh, uh, purpose of the United States, it's, uh, and, that, and that's terrible and wrong. Um, but there's a little bit to that. If you say that every single thing about America uh, derives from slavery, um, you kind of are calling into question some of the things that we kind of like and, and consider to make us different. Declaration of Independence, the Constitution in particular, and just kind of the, the notions that derive from it. We are a, a, a country of ideas, not about a nation. A little, some unique stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. And those things were precisely used by people to overcome 
the evil of slavery, which is something that happened uh, sadly in most uh, uh, most every country. So um, it's possible that she was pointing towards that, saying there's, that. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's, those are the lines that she opens with. Our, our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written. For generations, black Americans have fought to make them true. It, it, I, it's the sort that's, of thing that someone— That's a good point. That's a good, actually, it's kind of a good point. Okay. Um, our founding ideas of, uh, of, uh, of liberty and equality were false when they were written— well, that's the, too the ideals weren't false. Correct. It's true that there was a great deal of hypocrisy about America. It's also true that, as you said, Matt, this was a fucking innovative idea that for all of the for all of the deficiencies and the deficiencies were profound and they were myriad. It wasn't just black people who were not fully humanized in the Constitution. Like if you didn't happen to be a white dude who owned property, this was not necessarily a project that seemed to have your best interests at heart. If you were a woman in this universe, whatever your race, this was kind of a shit deal for you on some levels. All of that said, this project was better than any project of its kind that had happened before for all of its defects. And it's a bit like hating the original cell phone with that damn power pack that you carried around in a briefcase because it wasn't a fucking iPhone X. It doesn't make sense. The, 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 the reasoning behind this entire project that that's part of it is deficient, but we can go further for generations. Black Americans have fought to make them true. It's just not true that it was only black Americans either. Not that she says that there weren't whites also involved, but it, it's a statement that seems to ignore the fact that the entire project of making America a more perfect union, and this is where I get my most patriotic here, isn't something that involved people of every imaginable stripe and background. That, that Lovejoy's martyrdom, that, that it's of less significance because he was insufficiently black or perhaps too white, that his whiteness made him perhaps inherently defective and it doesn't matter that he was killed, that the Freedom Riders, who were the first three people to be killed during that entire Freedom Summer project, that, that they, two of them anyways, two of the three who happened to be white or maybe Jewish, yeah, perhaps, I think they're yeah, Jewish, yeah. Um, that perhaps their sacrifice doesn't merit as much consideration because they didn't happen to be black. I think there's something there's something wrong with not appreciating that the the perfecting the fulfillment of the American ideal is something that, of course, has benefited black people who suffered in this country because of various things um, historically like redlining. But it's also a mistake to not acknowledge that redlining was bad for lots and lots of people. Um, yeah. It was bad for anyone who lived in a predominantly immigrant community because it was hard for you to get a loan because of redlining. And furthermore, that redlining was also just bad policy and that it was bad for the United States to have discriminatory policies that weren't based on the sort of actual things that you might pay attention to with respect to economics, which I think brings me to a related point. The notion that is being advanced across the entire piece and across the entire project is that somehow slavery and discrimination and Jim Crow, it's in some way, shape or form necessarily benefited the United States in ways that sort of expropriated wealth and opportunity from black people and gave it all to white people. And I just don't think that's true. I don't think that it's obviously true 
that in every instance, like these awful policies like benefited white people at the expense of black people. I think in many cases, the policies of the South, like slavery broadly, that racism broadly and categorically, quite frankly, like disadvantaged the people who were racist themselves, that the, the retardation of the South in terms of its economic and cultural and social development is a direct result of racial hatred. And that those people today continue to suffer as a consequence of having a, 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 a past in which a certain percentage of the population was dispossessed uh, and not able to enjoy the full benefits of citizenship because of their race. And that that is it has a nasty hangover associated with it, a hangover that actually impacts black Southerners and white Southerners alike in ways that are very difficult to quantify, but ought to be recognized. I think Mike Lee actually had a piece at National Review um, earlier this week, um, and maybe it was published last week, um, that I would certainly commend to people that underscores a lot of the same sentiments um, just in terms of the fact that that blacks and whites both suffer um, and both have uh, depressed economic um, outcomes um, and that a lot of those depressed economic outcomes, I think, can be traced back to sort of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. I've got a question for Moynihan, and I know Camille's going to want to come into it. I was yeah, I'm like, saying I'm talking way too much. I was, no, but no, like no, you're no. making up for the last uh, couple of weeks when you're uh, when you're uh, uh, sleeping off your hand. Was I? Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, according to our, uh, totally our, uh, our good Reddit uh, people out there, I'm totally um, fine. Shout out to our uh, Reddit fans. Uh, totally cool. Anyways, uh, part of the. Uh, uh, the the cladding, for lack of a better word, of of this uh, nineteen uh, sixteen nineteen project, which was uh, I mean it was a really thick edition of the Sunday Magazine. Um, they had a special uh, other paper section. They said there's going to be an ongoing project. Is this the beginning? It's a process. We're going to be doing this for a long time. But anyways, that's sort of an explainer. Um, and uh, and they talked about. Uh, 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 how a, quote, non-negotiable aspect of the project that helps underscore its thesis is that almost all of the contributors would be black. Yeah, that's wrong. I don't know how that's non-negotiable and almost at the same time. That's, well. that, was, that was an interesting uh, juxtaposition. And I wonder, like, who's who's the white dude? Kevin, in the Cruz. Corner? Kevin Cruz from uh, Princeton oh, right. University. Kevin yes. Yeah. Kevin's the token, but like Moynihan, what, what do you what do you think about like just non negotiable, non negotiable, almost chromatic, almost uh, non negotiable? Well, a white person simply couldn't understand. Simply couldn't understand. Look, I would just say one very basic thing is that I read I've read two great books on slavery. I've read not a lot of great books, but two that I can think of that were written by by white people, uh, which was Eugene Genovese's book Roll Jordan Roll, back when Genovese was, I believe, something close to a Stalinist. I mean, it was a, it was a Marxist <laughs> interpretation of, of slavery. It was a pretty interesting one too. And Genovese ultimately with his, with his wife, both kind of drifted right eventually. Um, and then Hugh Thomas, who died fairly recently, was a yeah. British historian, um, wrote a very good book on the Spanish civil war, wrote a very good book on the um, history of slavery. They're, they're kind of generalist books, but I, I, the impression I get when I hear most people talking about this is they actually don't even know the, the, the kind of rudiments of the story. Hmm. They just know that there were slaves, it was horrible, and we have to atone for this sin, and, which is true, right, in, in, insofar as you know, one should. I wonder at some point if the overemphasis on atoning for the past, and I've mentioned this a lot here, is the, is, is the kind of American exceptionalism hmm. used to be something of— Kind of neoconservatives, right? 
American foreign policy, this sort of Winthrop uh, shining city on the hill. Now it's this, it's this thing that we think we are exceptionally evil and bad and dark. And at what point, you know, do we say that, you know, this, this, this focus on this right now, is this because of Donald Trump in the White House? Or is it, I, th- I don't think it is actually. I think, I think it was before. all listing towards this and it started before. And then, you know, once, and I think there's a, there's a, what kind of happens is in a sort of adjacent point is that when people started becoming afraid about talk, of, of talking about stuff like this, this is when this stuff became a little more radical. The, the the premise of this thing is interesting and it's wrong and it's radical. It's a radical idea. And if you look at the historical literature on this stuff, nobody really agrees with this. There's been some books recently and some um, controversy about those books about, you know, a sort of, you know, cotton and the American economy. So mm-hmm. Camille and I were talking about this earlier today and you sent me an interesting piece on it. So there's, there's a historical debate about this, but it's and it hasn't been and it's not because it was just written by sort of imperialist white people or sort of capitalist white people. It's just that it, it's, it's kind of a stretch in a lot of ways. And I think that like there was a Vox podcast with our friend, uh, Jane, uh, Coatson and, uh, and some other, some other people on it. And even these are, these are people who, you know, are, um, nobody's conservatives. Right. And, and even they were like, yeah, this is like way too far. This, you know, very, very liberal podcast. And what people would think is probably like the kind of that and kind of pod state America. It's just sort of mainstream liberal opinion. Um, you know, and I get this sense now that P, the, the, the center has shifted so much in this stuff. And it's primarily because people don't want to speak out about it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes these kind of binaries. There's no nuance in the middle because you don't want to be nuanced because they'll take something that you say and say, well, like, oh, like, as you said, you pointed it out, a lot of the conversation about this thing has been about people questioning it. That's right. You know? Yeah. And it's like, wait, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that people are questioning it. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a filtration process, right? <laughs> you have to, you have to sift a little bit. You have to get, you know, Tommy Laren and these complete clowns and worthless people who know nothing about American history and only know how to throw thunderbolts in a, in a sort of ideological debate. Mm-hmm. They know this is a liberal thing and they, they're, they're mad about it and they don't, you know, they, I mean, like they could be potentially right, but it's coincidental. It's like when, you know, these people from the Maoist international movement were right about the Iraq war. You know, it's like, it, 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 Ma- yeah, Maoism wasn't the correct response. You guys just happen to be right. So, I mean, there's a lot of that. And I think that the kind of historiography of this people, as Camille said, like this whole thing is like, there's nothing new here. You know, a newspaper is supposed to bring you things that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise know because it's in this kind of rarefied world of academia and they kind of spit it out in a more uh, palatable, acceptable way without all that silly weighted down with Pomo language. But the thing is, it's actually being presented as a radical new idea. It is a radical idea. The actual under the, the concepts that underpinned it, the, the mm-hmm. data, um, the historical kind of points that people might not have heard of before all existed, in, you know, in in every volume about this great a tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. This great injustice. And these exist all over the world. I mean, I, I think that I was never a huge, massive Thomas Sowell fan, right? I didn't get it. But the older stuff, I mean, he became just a real crank in the sense that his books and his his columns were totally different. His, his columns, columns. Were, were bananas, right? And not very good. But he wrote a couple of good books back in the day. And I read one called Conquest and Cultures, which is a great kind of global look at this stuff. And if you don't use those other countries, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're talking about economies, how did economies that both had the same, you know, oppressive systems of slavery 
um, developed so differently. I'd say his recent books were actually pretty good as well. Yeah, no, just yeah. in, in black, black yeah. rednecks and white yeah, liberals. Uh, well, that's all, all, already almost ten years yeah, old. Books about disparities. Yeah, I mean that stuff is like it's interesting that we're not comparing this stuff to other countries, and most people are actually surprised that other countries had slaves. Mm-hmm. What was the number I sent you today? Eight percent of uh, yeah, yeah. Of slaves. Some that came to I, to, I don't remember the to precise, the Americas. Yeah, I don't the, remember like the precise numbers. Yeah, in in the entire period of slavery, actually came to. to it's just a very North small America. percentage of all oh, of the right. slaves yeah. that were imported into the the, the South America, North Cuba, America, actually colonies. found their way to the United States. Yeah. Um, and to the Americas, anyways, found their way to the United States. Most went to the Caribbean and South America. Brazil yeah. actually received an extraordinary yes, number, number, high yeah. number of yeah. uh, slaves. And Brazil, of course, was continuing to import slaves for much longer than the United States. Yeah. The United States domestic slave population exploded relative to the rest of the slave population in the Americas. But that has a hell of a lot to do with the fact that America didn't have a lot of the horrible uh, maladies and diseases that a lot of the Caribbean slaves had to endure, perhaps the South American slaves as well. Um, So they had longer lifespans and they were able to procreate in ways that um, they could not in other parts of the world. Um, But suffice it to say, if slavery is the key to exceptionalism. It is amazing that Brazil and all of the various islands in the Caribbean aren't as remarkably successful as the United States. And well, it we seems be, to we me. shouldn't be encouraging <laughs> fourth world countries to, to you know in, you know let's let's have slavery. Yeah, it, ended it, up pretty well for, for the United it, States. It's a it's a bizarre thing where you have a project like this where you make an assertion like that, that that this is the thing that made the United States remarkable, and you don't ever have to contend with what I think is a pretty fundamental question. Well, how did all those other places that have slavery work out? Mm-hmm. Like, did they, did they do just as remarkable as the United States? If they didn't have more slaves sent to them, how is it that they continued to be successful? It seems to suggest something about the premise, about the theory might just be um, defecate, deficient. Um, but there, but the you, Nick, you, con- Nick yeah, Confessor's tweet um, yeah. to, to highlight a point you made earlier is probably my favorite thing um, related to this. Uh, I think he said so many, so many of the reactions I'm seeing to the 1619 project show exactly why it was needed. Um, proof, of course, yeah. that your your dissent yeah. is proof of your deficiency. Even your, even, even your skepticism. <laughs> I don't even <laughs> dissent. I mean, I'm just like skeptical. <laughs> Of that premise, because I, I, it strikes me that the core of it is itself ideological, uh-huh. right? It's not of course as it if is. people were sitting around aggregating data and they said, you know what? Holy shit, we were wrong. Oh my God, we're totally <laughs> wrong about it. Let's get, it, pay, get it, the editors in. Let's do a special edition, some podcast. They were like, no, they're recasting history in this way. And they might sort of shine a light on it for people that didn't know some of the stuff. And there might be some good elements of this. But, you know, again, the, 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 the sort of thesis statement is so aggressive and it's so aggressively grand in this idea. Oh, like, quote I, from it, just one line. It's, yeah. it's uh, the goal is to reframe American history, making explicit how slavery is the foundation on which this country is built. I That's think, the I, I think I, I, you know, I think a lot of people disagree with me on this, but I think that is offensive in the, in almost every way. Uh-huh. The historian's job, I don't believe, and historians could probably disagree with me on this, uh-huh. is their job is to reframe history. Their job is to recontextualize history and bring in stories and data points and untold stories and things that people have forgotten, people, things they dig in the archives. That essentially reframes history. 
right? If you're bringing things in, holy shit, you know, I'll give you a good reframing of history. A number of scholars, including a guy, a fantastic American scholar named Christopher Browning, discovered that Nazis really weren't threatened when they refused to kill Jews. They did this mostly voluntarily. Hmm. And there's a fantastic book about this called Ordinary Men. It engendered this very, very big debate. Daniel Goldhagen uh, took this much, much further and did a very bad book about it called Hitler's Willing Executioners in 95, I think. It won a bunch of prizes. That reframed the entire debate about this. But Browning just found this stuff in the archives and was like, holy shit, these people were given on almost every stage the opportunity to walk away from this with no punishment. So something else is going on here. Mm-hmm. And the ordinary men thing was that none of them were actually ideological Nazis. Most of them were postmen and people that actually had a life before Nazi propaganda existed. So something else was, had to explain this. And he, he tries to, to figure that out. Reframing things is what happened because he found new data, right? When you come at this and say, I'm going to reframe the way America uh, views its own history, it's an ideological thing, right? I mean, there is a, a piece in The New Yorker this week, um, the Ian Fraser piece, on W.E.B. Du Bois in Lothrop Stoddard's uh, famous debate. I have a, a very mixed kind of view of Du Bois. The later Du Bois is an embarrassment. He wrote a very <laughs> uh, hot and heavy um, uh, obituary for Joseph Stalin. But his early stuff is actually fairly interesting. Um, and he's a brilliant guy, a fantastic writer, a fantastic speaker. And it's about this you know, debate that he had with a, a, a white supremacist, a legitimate white supremacist, somebody who said the Nordic races and wrote books about these things. That this is a guy who was trying to reframe history, even then reframe history in a way that it, it, you saw it only through the prism of Nordic people in the way they built civilization and other people stood in the way of them building civilizations. Absolute rubbish. And the book is an embarrassment to read. I, I looked up some of it and white nationalists and white supremacists now um, cite this book. It's pseudoscientific nonsense. But that was an attempt to reframe history for an ideological goal. I'm not comparing the two. This is not the same thing. But that is what people do when they have an ideological goal and they say, we're going to take and aggregate this data. Do not trust that data. Because what people who tell you up front that they're reframing something, what do they do with data that doesn't conform to their thesis? They throw it in the garbage. And so you get something that is, that's not like we reframed because look at what we came up with. It's this is our goal. And here we go. Buckle up. Just be skeptical. Of yeah, it. just the, I mean, the notion, I think a lot of the defenders of the project, defenders of the times in reacting to, to critics, um, don't feel the way in which it seems, I think, to a lot of outsiders that the Times is basically taking a side in a debate mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, stating this is a goal, this is a project, it's widespread, this is what we're going to be doing from now on. One of the quotes is, a project is a kind of activity that you engage in toward a goal, and that's the best way I can think of to describe what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, toward that, a goal. That doesn't, that doesn't usually feel like the role of what a, a newspaper is doing. And we've had a, a very strenuous debate in this country, I think, over the last five years. I think it's, you know, I, I would date it to Ferguson uh, somehow, uh, like mm-hmm. just sort of changed the way a lot of the, um, the race-based debate has happened uh, in this country. Uh, some of it for the good, but uh, not a lot of it. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to. Uh, it's hard to say. But it's. It permeates the discourse. It's all definitely you know part of of uh, of uh, how we discuss and process Donald Trump and and everything else around it. 
And I can understand, uh, Jane, uh, actually, you mentioned Coatson from Vox, wrote a piece, which I think is an interesting, challenging type of piece. Like, what if, hey, conservatives, yeah, what if yeah. the liberal critique of conservative racism was right? Or we we more- discussed this with Ben Dreyfus, I think, when right. you weren't here. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. And by the way, I should point out that Vox podcast, Jane, um, and not just because she's a friend of the show, has a lot of really interesting, smart things to say. And it, in, 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 I, I'm sorry to say this, but she probably disagree with me. But I think Jane, who covers conservatives and people who disagree with her in a very straight way, in a very honest way. Tina, very similar, um, people that play it down the center. I think being exposed to that stuff, um, you see when she's talking about this, the level of nuance, and maybe she covered it in the way that she does because she's already nuanced. Maybe it's a chicken and the egg thing, but she's very smart on this and it's worth listening to. So sorry to interrupt, but uh, that's fine. I have no idea what I was uh, talking about, but no, it's like that. It's that uh, <laughs> no one else did. these, uh, these <laughs> America did contested questions. Uh, you know, is, is the American project based on slavery is uh, you know, it, it like is the Ta-Nehisi Coates thesis about the country that we live in, that it's based on violence done to black bodies and that, and that that permeates everything we do. I mean, the author who did this, uh, um, who spearheaded this whole project also wrote a piece um, uh, a month ago about busing in New York Times Magazine, and it was really filled with a lot of super uh, historically interesting information. It was a good synthesis of a lot of the history of the busing debate, and the headline on it was pretty much uh, "It was never about busing." Her the the thesis of it was that that opposition to uh, uh, forced busing to to desegregate schools. Opposition was centered on racism, and that's basically and people are using it as an excuse, which is an overreach. It just is an overreach. Of uh, there are people, uh, and and this is something that I mean, I'm I'm witnessing in my own school district as uh, where they're thinking about uh, increasing by a lot the amount of busing to send kids who are assigned to schools they don't want to go to that's not near their their house. Um, Opposition to that can come in a lot of flavors and racism can have a lot to do with it. But the, it's a striking um, declaration that it was never about busing, that it's basically about racism. So this whole package in that that it's framed in this way with the explicit goal up front, it's a reframe. Everything is about racism. Um, it feels like that a newspaper, a thing that's supposed to be kind of an impartial paper record, is taking a side in a debate. And it also uh, – uh, you know, if you subscribe to the New York Times, which I do, and like try to read the goddamn sports section, you know, every single like front pager is like a 5,000 word story about racial relations in Texas, like middle school football teams. It's like, all right, but like, did the Knicks win? And the 1619 Project includes an essay on uh, the word owner being used in the NBA, which we discussed, or no longer being used in the NBA, which we discussed on the show previously. Right. So I, mm-hmm. I, I should, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to preface the. Everything by saying I'm not issuing a grade to the 1619 project yeah, nor I, I. and I haven't read every essay and I'm not going to because I <laughs> don't read everything in this world. Uh, uh, Shame on you, white man. Right. Yeah. So I'm go- and, and I, I'm not at all a, 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 an expert on the history of race relations and slavery and, and, me, me and shit like that in this country. Um, I know about basketball. I've written, <laughs> I've written about the effects of say, free agency uh, and economic rising economic power on kind of redressing um, uh, racism and structural racism in, in sports in the past. And I know a lot about Jackie Robinson. So I read that piece by Kurt Streeter with great enthusiasm. And it's nothing. 
It's, I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine pedestrian kind of look at things, but there's some sentences in there of like, uh, well, you know, there's a pretty direct line between antebellum slavery and the modern NBA. It's like, is there, is that a statement? Do we, do we, how do we, and like you, okay. You can say that it is an interesting, weird thing. And mm-hmm. it is, it's mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. and weird that a majority of owners and majority of coaches are white in a, a league. That's what? 80% black. That's interesting. Is it, is it interesting? Is, is it, it any more interesting it, than the fact that like Jews and Irish people used to dominate a lot of major league sports in the United States? Uh, in, I, I in, find, see, I find that interesting. Jews dominated yeah. basketball and boxing. I is, know. It, is it any more interesting though? It, no, but, but I see, I find that interesting. Interesting too, yeah. like they, like Jews were the uh, were the best basketball players a hundred years ago in this city. <laughs> it's awesome. I love if, that. If, I think if, it's if funny. there's anything that proves that racism was pervasive, in the, <laughs> <laughs> it's the fact that Jews are dominating basketball. <laughs> um, but once I, they took the, the bottom out of the basket, like ah, forget it. <laughs> I, I point out one thing, and, and all this stuff of saying like you know people rediscovering the wheel, the the idea that people are are at the time busing particularly in boston which was the the real center of busing that um people weren't having this debate at the time and the debate the people who uh, were opposed to forced busing in boston were on their heels at the time saying that they were not racist it was not considered to be a cool great thing to be from Boston at the time and be considered racist at the there, time. There is that. <laughs> there's, I mean, look, it gave Boston the reputation it has, you know, I mean, George richly deserved. Yes. Yeah. Well, look, I, it's it, the, this most liberal state in the union who has this reputation of being just like, sort of unbelievably racist. I mean, what Nixon won 49 States in 1972, which one did he lose? Massachusetts, right? It's a, it's a liberal state consider that, but the racism charges because of this. And a lot of it's because of busing and a lot of it's deserved too. There are a lot of, of uh, racist people that were opposed to busing. But the, I, I remember the main, and I had to look this quote up, the main uh, sort of opponent of busing was the hilariously Boston-accented uh, Louisa Day Hicks. Do you remember yeah, this yeah, woman at all? Um, and she, and I was trying to find this quote because she hated the fact, she was a Democrat, and she, you can make a very, very convincing case that she was a racist. Um, but she hated that charge so much that, um, and I was trying to find this quote, and she opposed George Wallace's four presidential runs. And she said, he's a segregationist. I do not want to be connected to him. Well, a large part of my vote, and she, she won one term in Congress. Well, a large part of my vote probably does come from bigoted people. I know I'm not bigoted. To me, the word means all the dreadful Southern segregationist Jim Crow business always shocked and revolted me. This is a woman who, um, you know, is this avatar of of racism in in Boston at the time. So it doesn't mean she's not. Of course not. I mean, look at her record. You can you can judge for yourself. But this 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 debate has been going on like, aha, this was all motivated by racism, says the man who you're citing that. It's like, well, you know, yeah, that was the argument back then, too. (laughs) There's nothing new about this argument at all. Nothing new under the sun for, for any of this stuff. But it is the one thing that bugs me about all of it is the fact that I was, I'll give you an example of this, a personal example, is I was on a shoot and we had a local crew, you know, we hire a local crew sometimes, and we had a local crew and we started talking about the Jussie Smollett story, I'd just broken. Hmm. And to say that this boozy dinner became contentious um, is a massive, massive <laughs> understatement uh, because I was with a bunch of people who were drunk, um, aggressive, and they were more aggressive than they were knowledgeable. And one thing that came out of it, which they were absolutely horrified by, 
is that I couldn't get them to admit that that the situation for black Americans and for minorities in this country had gotten better in the past 50 years. They would not acknowledge it. 50 years. 50 years. They're like, no, it's not better. Are you kidding me? And it's like, this is, I think, the byproduct of talking in, in this only in this way. And mm-hmm. I, I, not everyone does this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but this way of like, it's this constant drumbeat of white supremacy and this, that, and the other is that, okay, we can have conversations about this. We can have a very fruitful conversations about it um, sometimes. But I think now that I see so many people who find it astonishing that I would say that the lot of certain minority groups in this country has gotten better and they just reject it out of hand. Mm-hmm. I find that so astonishing. It's like it's it's the racial version of Steven Pinker's book in a way is that people say, you know, the world's more violent right. in the better interest of my, our nature. It's like, no, 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 it's significantly less violent. Like, gun crime was more shooting. It's like, no, no, no. In New York, right. we used to have 2,300 shootings a year. Now we have like 200. Right. It's a lot better. Right. And the same thing in his last book, uh, Pinker's last book. Um, which is, you know, here are all the indices of why the world is a better place. Mm-hmm. And I understand the doom mongering when you hear about climate change, um, when you hear about, you know, wealth inequality, uh, when you hear about all sorts of, you know, the, the media has become a global thing and it's a much more instantaneous thing and you're hit with it all the time, you're hit with bad news all the time. I get it. I understand. But it's, in, it's incumbent upon us to take a step back and actually, you know, question the, our, our own ideas about this stuff and, 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 and check, you know, check your premises. You know, it's, this is this idea of like, wow, it, it, it has gotten better in so many substantial ways. And it's not even controversial. To, it shouldn't be even controversial to say numbers bear it out. Walking down the street bears it out. And a, a perfect example of how crazy this has gotten. And I'll leave it on this. I told a friend of mine this other day. They said, that's not true. You could not possibly have been said by a blue check mark or a, a journalism journalist on Twitter. Somebody tweeted, one of you guys said it to me, I think. Um, where is it safe to be black in this city? What neighborhood <laughs> in, is safe for black people in this city? In Brooklyn. In, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. neighborhood is safe in Brooklyn <laughs> for black people? I mean from from whom? I, I believe it said who it was should, like who should friendly be to black people. <laughs> for what? I think it was like friendly to black people. Friendly to black they're, people. They're yeah. looking for the, a brunch place. Yeah. I mean I thought that was so amazing that like in, I mean, if people weren't afraid of any like honest discourse about race, that thing would have been ratioed to hell. (laughs) Right. But everyone, and and it might've been ratioed to hell by people who have fucking eggs and don't have their names on there, Mm -hmm. but real honest people left, right and center should have been like, dude, are you kidding me? There is, there's paranoia. Yeah. There's an, there's an absurd uh, set of beliefs about race that are just like received wisdom and, and are, are completely unchallengeable. And I suspect what people actually mean when they talk about the fact that things haven't improved for black people. And it's something that I've, I've encountered amongst black folks in a number of different contexts. Sometimes they're saying it to one another. Um, sometimes the, the old trope that I would hear all the time is, you know, it, it was better. It was better when the racism was explicit, when they would tell you right to your face, because it's so much worse when it, it becomes sort of subterranean and they're discriminating against you quietly and you just don't know it. In some, in some respect, I can kind of appreciate what they mean when it becomes like this, this this paranoid notion that never leaves your mind where you're always imagining it around every corner like that is i suppose worse because but it's you're not still saying it's that not it's the world though. yeah it's not the okay. world that is your your problem the prison is in your own mind 
every experience is another opportunity to affirm your belief that racism is the most pervasive fact about reality. Um, whether or not it's true doesn't matter. So long as you imagine it to be true, you can find ways to justify that belief. Um, but but the, the, the point you were just making reminded me of another bit from Nicole Anna Jones's uh, piece, and perhaps we can leave her alone and her piece after this, and I can stop sort of nitpicking at particular passages. But for centuries, white Americans have been trying to solve the Negro problem, quote unquote. Uh, they have dedicated thousands of pages to this endeavor. It's common still to point to rates of black poverty, out of wedlock births, crime and college attendance, as if these conditions in a country built on a racial caste system are not utterly predictable. But crucially, you cannot view these statistics or those statistics while ignoring another that blacks were enslaved here longer than we have been free. One, again, the use of the, the, the we in that context, I always find just in, intensely offensive, especially in a, a piece where she acknowledges that she herself, like there's a generation of black folks who have enjoyed sort of the full legal rights that one would anticipate. She's on staff as, as, as a black person. <laughs> I just point that um, out. They've never asked me to write for them. It's entirely <laughs> possible to be black in America and to enjoy like a, a, a wonderful and full life and to, to not be shot and killed by the police. In fact, it's very likely that you won't be shot and killed by police because most people aren't shot and killed by police, black or otherwise. Um, but again, it's this, there's, there's something about, an inability to recognize that overconcern can actually be a problem, that it is entirely possible to hate racism, to hate bigotry, to think that slavery was a terrible evil and to not think that this is the most important fact in human history and that everything is racist. Like that there's a, there's, there's a gulf between those two positions and it's okay to occupy a space in between there. And I, and I think to the extent there is dissent from this, this piece in the room, it's because we occupy that massive gulf, that space between there's no racism anywhere in America and the space between racism is everywhere. And it is the most important thing about, but you know, everyone who, uh, who would disagree with us. Um, and I think that, you know, it is actually kind of rare that we actually have a consensus. And I think there's a sort of a broad consensus on this thing. Probably, mm. probably disagree on a lot of kind of, yeah, there's, there's some, there's some things. nuance here, I'm sure. But, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a strange thing because I find that, that I'm afraid of this stuff and afraid of this topic because of how quickly you're reduced to one of the binaries of, you know, the one or the zero of that. You don't think it exists or it exists everywhere. You don't, if I don't like Ta-Nehisi Coates, so therefore you must be, you know, Walter Williams or you must be, um, you know, who's it, Larry Elder or something like that. <laughs> is that, no, no, I'm not that in, in any way. But to, to, to dissent on this is, is not the best idea, because, primarily because people will listen to a first half of a conversation and be like, oh, that's the guy who doesn't, Camille in particular, you know, how many times I'm, I'm, I'm the one who will leave? Well, the no, I mean on Twitter. I mean, how many times? You know, mm -hmm. I, I thought your when I first met you, I thought your name was Tom. <laughs> I was like, why do they keep talking to this guy, Tom? You must have a, it, must his, it must be his handle, Camille. I'm also an uncle. Yeah, that must be. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Who's who's your niece and nephew? <laughs> they keep talking. You you must be. It must be an homage to Bill Cosby's wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, talking about this stuff is 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 just a. Is a bad idea. A lot of ways, but um, the quote that you read—wait, um, that's from—that's that's from her piece. 
So, I mean, it mentions uh, the Negro problem, puts it in, in quotations, of course, mm-hmm. that is a book of essays. And I mentioned W.B. Du Bois, who has an essay in that book, a very interesting and very good book. Um, but what she then goes on to say is out of wedlock, births, crime, et cetera. And that, in a way, is is a salvo that, I mean, this wasn't, it was, I mean, it was a problem at the time, but now it's become to, like the, the my namesake, the Moynihan Report mm-hmm. and things like that. It's like, okay, you can't, that stuff is irrelevant. But it, from a social science perspective, if you notice that there is, for instance, a high crime rate in a particular neighborhood and there's, you know, an out of wedlock birth rate of like 90 percent, it would be negligence to actually not study that and mm-hmm. not say, OK, well, let's see if there's any correlation mm-hmm. uh, here in, in what are the sort of. Uh, other factors and the people who have written about this in serious ways, not in the sort of Bill Bennett way of like, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, if black people get God again and stop treating the, you know, relationships with the sanctity of the, the, the Christian church, that stuff is nonsense. Right. But there's real social science on this stuff that looks into it from a non-ideological way. But I don't like the kind of erasure of that as a line of inquiry. And I know mm-hmm. that it's massaged in a way that it doesn't do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I have heard that so well, much. There, there are you- some people who take great pains to assert that it's simply not true that black people are overrepresented in these crime yeah. statistics in this way. And I suppose what they mean by that is that somehow these overrepresentative statistics are all the fault of white people. And in fact, I've heard Ta-Nehisi Coates say something along the lines of there's no problem that black people have that can't be fixed by ending racism. Um, but it, it does strike me as like a, a circumstance where if every bone in your body is busted up in a, in a car accident to talk endlessly about the fact that it was a car accident probably won't make your recovery any speedier. Sure. Um, sure. In fact, it, it's one of those things where I can both acknowledge that there are a number of socioeconomic indicators that point in pretty bad directions. And in some cases that there has been sort of a degradation of certain things since like the 1960s, like rates of out of wedlock childbirth have been like increasing at a higher rate than in other communities. Like this is a thing that I can acknowledge. I can even acknowledge that perhaps some of these things have some relationship to the past and perhaps to slavery in particular or Jim Crow or any of those other things and still say, okay, but what do we do about that if it's important and it's worth addressing and it's worth acknowledging and worth talking about? Um, I don't know that what you do about that necessarily has anything to do with what caused it in the first place. Um, And I don't know that talking about culpability in a collective tribal sense um, is actually helpful. And I think that's the other thing that I find so repugnant about a piece like this. There's this constant drumbeat where she keeps returning to this theme that we have done something or we have collectively suffered something. And it's the notion that either the, 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 the stripes that you bore or someone bore in the past belong to all of us collectively because we all happen to look alike or share some sort of ancestral pedigree um, or the accomplishments of some people who have come before you now belong to you. They are your possessions. And that is not how accomplishments work. Um, and I think that the belief that that's how accomplishments work, the belief that that's how suffering works, that it's inherited and you get to carry it with you forever. And now, I mean, we at certain points, I've said somewhat sarcastically that they talk about the suffering and the 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 the, the beatings that were undertaking and the lynchings as if they suffered each of them personally. 
but in a piece that closes with the line, we were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be American, but it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. Mm. Well, no, that is exactly what you're suggesting. Mm. Christ on the cross. Do you have a, a key phrase in there? Of uh, So if this is the problem that you say it is, what do we do? What I, I find in so much of the conversation about this over the last five years, so many of the things that have been produced, including this project that have been uh, praised and shortlisted for awards, um, 95% of it, throwing a number out of my arse, um, <laughs> is not um, what do we do. Um, it is... Well, the pres- prescriptive stuff's hard. It, it's hard. <laughs> it's so much harder. But like yeah. <laughs> the passion here is towards adjectives. It's towards feelings. It's towards I am going to shock you because you're not shocked enough. Um, and which is an interesting project. And uh, and and one can could say that that is worthwhile on its own. That reorients people's sense of, of passion about it. But uh, and maybe this is the kind of uh, maladjusted. Uh, uh, libertarian uh, noob in me, but um, I think that what what do you do is is an interesting question. I like if you woke up in the morning and said, looked around you and said, "All right, I suppose that a lot of this stuff was built on slavery." So let's go look at the things that or that are built on bigotry at the very least. What are the structures? Where are they? What what are the laws that were written that were suggested all of them at the time um, that were deliberately uh, set up to exclude or somehow punish black people? Mm. There's a lot of such laws. Some of them are, are very obvious, like black people can't come and use this drinking fountain. Some of them are less obvious to the to the modern eye, such as we're going to increase minimum wage so that immigrants and black people can't take these jobs and mm-hmm. we can protect those jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't see people taking this huge uh, frame and interpretive kind of stance to try to interrogate those things and try to undo things as much as I would like. An exception that I would like to point out uh, uh, that is uh, commendable um, in the political realm is Bernie Sanders came out with his criminal justice uh, package, I think, last week. Um, And it actually answers the question from his point of view, some of which I disagree with, um, a lot that I I tend to agree with, of what would we do if we think that the criminal justice system is set up uh, that disproportionately impacts racial minorities or poor, disadvantaged people? And his answer is, okay, let's stop cash bail. Let's stop using uh, poor people on on that end of the the criminal justice system as sort of a cash cow. Um, Let's stop the drug war. These are actually things that you would do if you want to get rid of things that that are legacy. I, and it's and it's remarkable to me that this project and uh, you know a lot of the Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, kind of of writing and the way that people talk about it and react to it and almost emote to it mm-hmm. and then sort of mm-hmm. police or uh, you know attempt to kind of publicly shame the way that people react to be it like it's almost never about that stuff it, it's really rarely about that it's it's it wants to get towards a culpability and it wants to get towards a sense of uh, emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an opportunity lost. It's, it's all liturgical, like all of it. Yeah. It's liturgical. It really is. <laughs> it's, it's and, it. and it's our, our friend uh, and uh, one-time guest, John McWhorter, who wrote a piece two about times. this. Two-time guest. Yeah. About the Church of Anti-Racism. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'll just say this is that there, there's a point at which the the history – and the kind of historia- historiography, too, which is like, you know, we're looking at how this his- history was written and sort of canceling historians who wrote about it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. But um, 
when it's gotten to a, a place of complete mania, when we're looking at this of the 1619 project through the prism of history, so we understand why things are the way they are today and how we should sort of, to Matt's point, actually not telling us how we can reverse these inequities that have been delivered to us by, by history. Mm-hmm. History delivers inequities in every country and every place and every uh-huh. society in, in pretty brutal ways. Uh-huh. Right? And uh-huh. I can't think of a country where that's not actually currently happening. You know, I mean, America's <laughs> doing okay when we're talking about police shootings um, in 2015, there were, you know, I, I guess 30 odd uh, unarmed black men shot by the police um, in a country of 330 million people. And a lot of those were questionable. And a lot of those, it's, it, you know, it's and questionable shootings should be thoroughly, thoroughly investigated. investigated. And I like, the fa- <laughs> I like the fact that the project exists uh-huh. and I like the fact that people are paying attention to it because, yeah. you know, we've all people listeners to this podcast now that we sometimes have troubles with the police ourselves. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and that person's me. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, it is. It, so I don't understand what I mean, it, it is an ideological project in the sense of like we're, you know, covering up the painting in San Francisco. Those of you who don't know about this, look in the archives of this show and you can listen to it. Um, t- taking down stature, statues of Admiral Rhodes because of Rhodesia and the Rhodes Scholarship probably going to be renamed. All of these kind of small things, renaming halls, not calling, uh, you know, uh, them owners, not uh, having masters of a house at Harvard, et cetera. What is the purpose of all of this? Because to Matt's point, which I think is a very, very good point, and one that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. Wait a second. We have to walk back from this because we are so ourselves in media up to our necks in like stupid Twitter debates about who used what word and what words you should not use, et cetera. What somebody tweeted 10 years ago, as we see yesterday with some random New York Times editor who's being you know, fired or canceled or whatever, never to work again. I'm sure he'll be working in a JC Penney and, and, you know, in Iowa city or something because of something he tweeted 10 years ago. We are in this kind of micro level. We're slicing this stuff so thin because we don't understand. And we think that there's such a small gap that separates the person on eight Chan who's cocking a pistol and buying and stockpiling ammunition to the person who mistakenly says something that they don't realize they're not allowed to say anymore. Hmm. That, that, the, 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 the distance between that is so sh- is, because we can acknowledge it by saying, well, yeah, sure. It's very different. But if we don't, if we're not vigilant about this, that person's going to become that person. Yeah. Everyone is susceptible to becoming a shooter or a white mm-hmm. nationalist mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of our history, mm-hmm. et cetera. I just don't get if the actual goal is not a an ideological one mm-hmm. to shift the Overton window in a way which um, they a lot of these people have done and has been very successful. It actually has been successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am scared to talk about certain things in a particular way. I'm scared about certain words. I wouldn't. I mean, it's not a race thing, but I would never talk about trans issues ever, ever. I would just. I would never talk about it because the the mob is uh, very organized, and I've seen people. Uh, look at Graham Linehan, very mm-hmm. left-wing guy who wrote the show Father Ted, um, Irish comedian. He's written a bunch of comedy shows. Um, he decided to, 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 you know, take the gloves off and fight this, but, but this like mm-hmm. ruined his life. Even, even your He's assertion a- that you would never talk about it is a suggestion that you have bad ideas about this. And by bad ideas, I mean that they are fireable offenses. Uh, and well, it sounds uh, well, like well, you should probably I, be no, no ideas are fireable offenses these yeah. days. I don't believe that that's true. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, there's certain places that will fire you because of the actual idea. Mm. They rarely fire you because of the idea. They mm-hmm. fire you because of 
what the idea has done to a certain minority of people, very, very small minority, who are going to make their lives difficult online. Mm. They're going to make their mm. business, um, you know, 40 people are going to protest something and the Daily Mail needs a story and it's going to be a story and you have to, you actually have to fight this. Um, 90% of the stories out there about this stuff aren't stories. There are, you know, 15 people said something on Twitter right, and it becomes right, a story. Right. Yeah. And then the story actually metastasizes. The, the imagined excitement. Yeah. The imagined excitement, yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, I don't, I just don't get if it's not an ideological project, trying to move that center to a particular, you know, in this case, I would, I would guess it's left. I don't, I don't really see it as a kind of political thing in that way, but moving the center, let's say to the left is the goal solving things, making, uh, hoping that people who are live in East New York and don't have a great lot in life. Um, you know, I, I always find it with affirmative action and with preferences and hiring and stuff everywhere you ever go in our universe they hire people who who are have a slightly different skin color and went to Harvard. I think you should probably hire someone from East New York and try to do that. Um, hire somebody from Brownsville who is a smart, young, bright person who does actually not have an opportunity. And so all of this is just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, as to your point that no one's actually doing anything about anything. I We've talked about this for a while. Um, there's plenty of other things that I'd like to say and like to explore on this topic. I genuinely and sincerely hope that someone who disagrees with we disagrees with me vociferously would be willing to come on the podcast and have a conversation with me, um, even one where I say, look, I, I think your ideas are grotesque. Because if they said that to me personally, I think your ideas are grotesque. That's not the same as saying I think you are grotesque. I think you are an awful, irredeemable human. No, I think that's terrible. I fundamentally disagree with it. I think that it 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 runs counter to my moral intuitions um, and my philosophical moorings. Let's have a discussion about that. It shouldn't be like the sort of thing that makes this uh, a place that seems like an unacceptable place to have a conversation. Um, and uh, I do genuinely hope that that happens, but there are some other profound things happening in the world. And maybe it makes sense to at least acknowledge the fact that the stock market has taken another tremendous <laughs> tumble today. It's like 650 point yeah. wait till Monday bro. after the yeah. 800 point dip from before um, this today's dip coming on the heels of Donald Trump um, insisting on Twitter uh, that, uh, American companies should find alternatives to China. And Donald Trump says, quote, our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. They have stolen our intellectual property at rate of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and they want to continue. I won't let that happen. We don't need China. And frankly, we would be far, we'd be far better off without them. Um, Camille. Yeah. Burying the lead here. Go go ahead. Uh, can we find the tweet of Donald Trump ordering? Yeah, the word was order. ordering yeah. American businesses to stop doing doing business with China. Or I order I, them. I thought I, I, I thought hereby order. You're right. I did I leave the word order. I, I did leave the word order out of that. That's uh, not but trolling I, anymore. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's but I did say he says that American companies should find alternatives to to China. Um, yeah, but that's, I, that that yeah. suggests that yes. he's just you know right. giving a little ordered nudge. Is, ordered is the is he's cast Sunstein. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ordered is a, an important word. Although yeah. tweets still today uh in 2019 do not have the force of law so no but it does important. give you a window into just how 
uh, dumb he is and just how I mean, the, the kind of imperial presidency that we've been warning about before Donald Trump and guys like, you know, the libertarian and guys like Gene Healy wrote, you know, smart books about this, a concentration of power mm-hmm, and everything. Mm-hmm. You don't want the concentration of power in the presidency when you have a guy that is this reckless and stupid. You don't want it generally. You don't want it generally, yeah. but <laughs> particularly when you have a guy who's this reckless and stupid that is inhabiting the White House. I mean, I remember during the campaign um, hearing him say, and t- I was at a rally and turning to somebody that I was with, who I, who I didn't work with, I was turning to somebody who was standing next to me and I knew, and was like, how the fuck does he think that's going to happen? And he was like, I'm going to prevent these factories from going to Mexico. Mm-hmm. What legal right do you have to pre- prevent a company from doing business in Mexico and establishing a factory there? Well, I suppose you could punish them with tariffs that are individually you know, focused on one company, but which would probably also be yeah, legal. Can't run, but a, you run can't, afoul of the law. Yeah, yeah, but you cannot do that. In the fact of the matter, one would have thought that this idiot would have adjusted to the presidency, having been in there for how long now? Three years? Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half reckless, stupid years. And you would think that he would understand it. I mean, this week, in the past two weeks of Donald Trump, is like, you know what? Enough. Honestly, enough. It's too much. It's like, well, we don't want to, we give the presidency too much stature, and he's like making it a little joke here, et cetera. When you look at the international stage, the alienation from, I mean, the Chinese, of course, are going to be alienated, and that's just their their lot. Uh, The South Koreans don't want to have anything to do with us and don't uh, consider us a reliable partner when war games and and our our military exercises end. The support that we've given Korea since the war didn't end in 1953, just an armistice, war is still going. And we're saying, you guys owe us. You got to pay us some money. What are you doing? Kim Jong-il writes me these beautiful letters. What are you guys doing? This great country of South Korea who got through a dictatorship in the 1970s and actually became a flourishing democracy and a fantastic, lovely place to go to um, is being insulted. And Denmark is being insulted. Oh, it's a troll. It's a joke. You know what? You're not a fucking comedian. You're a fucking president. You know what? Like, you know, oh my God, that guy was taking out my appendix and he made this, he did this incredible bit. Stop doing a fucking bit. Take my fucking appendix out. Like, what do you, like, what is the, what are the, is the problem with these people? Some of whom are friends are some people we know on Twitter being like, oh yeah, you guys are falling for the troll. He's the president. You've got Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah, you try, no, go to like, yeah. you fucking get on 4chan. Don't sit in the White House alienating allies, making everybody's life difficult. I go to Denmark fairly frequently, actually. And you know what the problem is? More than anything, I have to fucking deal with this every time I have dinner. Every time I have dinner, like, what is going on with this guy? I don't know, Jens. Can I have my fucking Rudapulsa? And just, like, it is unbearable going going abroad right now. Because this guy, you thought it was bad during the Bush era. It's like, this is this has gotten to a point where I, the joke isn't funny where I've said off of the show that I do believe he is pretty funny and you see him doing a shtick, but he was serious. When I saw that wall street journal, the initial article, we were recording the show actually that it was like at various degrees with various degrees of seriousness. He said this and it turns out that he was completely serious. I thought he was going to get on Twitter and deny it, but he gets on Twitter and he's like, what? No, why very, can't, very interesting. Why can't I buy this from them? Yeah. And I'm, I'm I mean, this is not, this is like Brewster's millions. He, or something. he tweeted a, a picture of Jesus Trump Christ. tower on the beach. And yes, it was made by John Carl. I think yeah. uh, the, like, he, yeah, like he's going to make a joke about it, but it's like, can you not? 
Actually, I'm no, trying. You called call the prime minister of or president of Denmark uh, like uh, Rude, nasty. Um, nasty. for her nasty, yes. uh, nasty. comments. Same thing you called Hillary. Yes, being being nasty because she she wasn't nice to him when he said, "What is wrong with you? Why can't you sell one of your possessions <laughs> that you don't?" I mean, it's a Danish like protectorate, basically. They don't. They, There's they a tweet right. here from uh, Quinn uh, Hilliers, Ugh, conservative right. columnist. Is uh, not necessarily my favorite a conservative columnist, but um, I was. Uh, Happy to see. To review, U.S. Jews should be, quote, loyal to Israel, which Trump, quote, the second coming of God and the, quote, chosen one is king of. Denmark should be nuked <laughs> or something because its prime minister said Trump is absurd. POTUS's own Fed chair is the, quote, enemy, and POTUS can order companies not to trade with uh, China. And that's like, the here, last, here. that's like the last 48 hours. Yeah. And that's not even, <laughs> yeah. we're not even talking about like, uh, I mean, he's referring to it, but like he's extravagant retweeting of Wayne fucking Allen Root. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was like the worst he's, performance I ever had on Bill Maher, <laughs> which I probably never go back because of it. I remember that. Just, I, I just sat next to him quietly as he shouted. And I was like, I, I actually looked at the camera at one point. I was like, I give up. He's just like, he's a psychopath. He, when he got back in the news, I, I uh, went back and found the, uh, what was called the uh, great, no, the huge uh, Trump debate at Freedom Fest in 2016, which uh, go look for it. I tweeted out. It's on my uh, stream. You can also uh, YouTube it. was it. that fucking shyster and who else? Uh, some guy named Mark or Dan Mindris or Mark Mingra. He said that he was like a Fox News person and like I'd never seen him in Fox. Ever. Uh, so those two on that side, it means Jeffrey Tucker on uh, the anti-Trump side. This is 2016. They gave my uh, Trump had gone to Freedom Fest, which is a libertarian conservative kind of gold bug uh, conference. Um, Every he'd gone there and it was controversial that he would go there uh, and like uh, the uh, Mark Skousen who uh, runs it uh, sort of was having to explain himself. Uh, but he gave a speech or uh, he blurted a, uh, a bunch of, of, of brain spasms out there uh, in July of 2015. And by the next year, most of the crowd, it was just like they, they're in on Trump. So I'm up there on the great Trump debate and it's moderated by – Nick Gillespie. Uh, and so Gillespie, <laughs> uh, the combination of, of Gillespie doing his moderation, which was hilarious and wasn't what you would describe as moderation. Um, and then Jeffrey Tucker saying what this is precisely is fascism. Um, people, <laughs> if they would have had fruit and vegetables, we'd have been yeah. all directed uh, at our at our uh, heads and uh, and rewatching it. I'm basically sit, sitting there with a, a, a beatific, uh, like very calm smile uh, the whole time because everyone's going crazy around me and it's funny. Um, and then at some point I, I uh, uh, lean over to Wayne Allen Root and said, can you can you just for a second, stop being a dick. Uh, did you say that? I did. Yeah. He's a fucking dick. Yeah. <laughs> he is a he is a dick, and he's he's quite stupid too. Can, can the, guy, I, the guy's could, name was Dan Mangrew, by the way. Mangrew. Man, Dan Mangrew Ward. Take it easy. He's no, our friend. We well, like him. Wayne Allen in 2008 at the Democratic National uh, Convention, we were out there reporting, and he was lurking around in Denver for some reason, and that's when he was going to give someone a million dollars if they came up with. Uh, a, if they came up with uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, Columbia transcripts, oh, because he went to law school the same time Obama, and I never saw him there. Yeah, uh, you, you yeah, know, yeah. I fill in the blanks. Yeah. You tell me. Yeah, uh, and I'll give you a million dollars if his if his uh, grades are better than mine. Mm-hmm. I'm a son of a butcher, <laughs> big, big man on campus. Um, one other thing that 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 struck me about um, these uh, Trump's disloyalty comments. Mm. Um, you know what I found pretty funny is that the number of people that I saw online 
accusing Trump of anti-Semitism. Because of this comment. Because of this comment, right. right. Because, because this, the dual this, loyalty. Because the dual loyalty thing, mm-hmm. but he's too stupid to realize it actually exists. Um, honestly, I don't think he's smart enough to, he has to no idea. understand that. Um, are um, 99% of the time the same people that get deeply offended and outraged um, when Ilhan Omar is accused of something uh, very similar, of using language that is redolent of anti-Semitism, in which she said, uh, what was the actual quote that the tweet, tweet was about? Um, like hypnotize the world she, during, during the Gaza war of 2012. Mm-hmm. She said Israel had hypnotized the world, hypnotized the world, which yeah. is a classic anti-Semitic trope yes. too. Mm-hmm. And if you were to go out there and starts a little more on the nose, a little more on the nose, mm-hmm. I would say that it's actually um, a slightly more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, those people who are like the squad is the best. I'm like, wait, how, how is that one that and that one's not what are you guys doing and is she's it? uh specifically gone uh for the dual loyalty to thing too and i i don't think you, you regardless of how dumb trump is you you just don't have an excuse to make the no, dual lo- loyalty no, no, charge whether it's about no, uh no. american jews or catholics that although, used to although be, it's that the sort like, of thing that is actually done quite frequently amongst minority communities and perhaps i'm just talking about my own personal experience where in holding perspectives that are unusual for someone who happens to look like me, I've often been charged with somehow being disloyal to my people or right, working on someone else's behalf. Hence bad. the frequent charges of Tomism. That's the reason why Donald Trump's suggestion that not being a Republican or being a Democrat made you less than Jewish if you were a Jew or disloyal to Judaism more broadly. Um, the reason it's grotesque is for the same reason that it's grotesque to call Camille Foster and Uncle Tom for holding views in, yeah, in earnest yeah, and, and it's sincere no excuse, way. excuse, by the way, in, in, you know, when you're in front of a judge to say, I wasn't aware that that law existed. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still guilty, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's unacceptable for him to say that, regardless of whether he was aware of the due loyalty thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of the people who suggest he was also in the same breath say that he's a fucking moron. I say he's a fucking moron and probably didn't know. Yeah. But I mean, his ideas on this were you should be, you know, on your knees praying to me because I moved the embassy and no one is doing more and loves Bibi Netanyahu more than me. Why are you Jews liberals? Yeah, that's what he's saying. And that's and it's it's not loyal to the state of Israel, which he then clarified. <laughs> it's helpful. Clarified yeah, later job. is that, you know, there's sort of cascading levels in, of stupidity here. But I just think it's amazing that the people who, who accused or, or give Ilhan Omar a pass on using language that is in the lexicon of anti-Semites, um, not uh, giving Trump a pass. You have to give both a pass. I don't think you should give either of them a pass, to be honest. Perhaps we should, you should come back to that in a little bit. But I, I did see a tweet from uh, Justin Amash, actually. Um, Donald Trump is a threat to liberty in America. He's grown government, centralized power, and undermined rights. He promoted division and contempt. If I stop there, is there a recent president for whom much of that description is not applicable? Like, who, uh, who hasn't, who, degrees matter. Sure. But I'm thinking about my own perspective on the president having endured two and a half years of Donald Trump after having advocated my sort of Matt Trump position during the election itself. And 
I should go on to read the rest of Justin's tweet. <laughs> he says, uh, he appears increasingly unstable. I'd say that's probably true. true. Actually, yeah. I'd, I'd say it's pretty con- consistent. I mean, yeah. he's been pretty consistently I, unstable. I think it's like reliably, reliably it worse now. Reliably like unstable. Ratchet. It seems like it's been a ratchet. Um, maybe yeah. he wants to lose the upcoming election. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, in 2020, we must elect someone who will restore respect for our constitution and each other. But it's the last bit that I think is interesting in connection with my initial question here. He's grown government, centralized power and undermined rights. He's promoted division and contempt. Um, perhaps people will disagree on the degree to which the he's promoted division and contempt is applicable to other people who've occupied the Oval Office in my own lifetime. I'm not certain that's true because I think when you're sort of demonizing the other party um, in your uh, alluding to certain dark forces within the country that are trying to undermine you. And there's a bit of fear mongering associated with that, that I think it, many presidents have engaged in, but it is definitely the case that all presidents in my lifetime have grown government centralized power and have undermined individual rights in important and profound ways that are, that often go unrecognized. And I still believe despite the fact that I think Donald Trump is uniquely awful in certain ways and uniquely frightening in certain ways and uniquely reckless in very important ways, um, that it is worth acknowledging just how we got to where the hell we are today with a president who many people perhaps presume can do anything, who ignorantly believes that he can almost certainly unilaterally do anything because he has a phone and a pen. That's a callback. If the choice in 2020 is a choice at all, like it might not actually be, at least with the two major parties, a choice between someone who is unlikely to grow government and centralize power and who will not undermine rights in some important and profound way. That might be an inescapable reality to the extent you plan to vote for we have to either of the two for parties. Not being so blatant about promoting division and contempt. And that might just tip it. He does that. He, I think he, he, he does that more than any president that we've had since Nixon. Hmm. Um, and it's more central to his daily shtick. It's more central to his campaign. It was literally the first thing out of his mouth on the campaign uh, trail in 2015. Um, so if that is part of what he, is, he has done. And you're right. There's a lot that, that's built up to that. There's a, a bunch of structures of thought that got us to that point, including stuff that was never called out in real time because it's okay to express, uh, uh, you know, more polite senses of contempt for large blocks of people if it's directed at certain types of people um, uh, in those directions. But I think he is unique in that. I mean, you you were saying uh, like you're holding two uh, thoughts at the same time of like. It's not at all unique how he uh, is a threat to liberty and has grown government centralized power, and yet he might be uniquely awful. Um, and I think that uh, Amash's tweet in the narrow part is getting at both concepts, um, and they're both worth talking about. Um, I, I think that it's not – it's become so much of – I, I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before, but like that part of the movie, The Thing, where like a head sprouts off of a spider leg or a spider leg sprout off a head and it crawls down the wall in the middle of a monster scene and everyone kind of stops what they're doing and they look at it and go, no fucking way. Um, that this week was a no fucking way week in a huge way with the way a president's behaving. It's like this can't be good for any like 
short and long term health of American political culture. No, no, and no, norms it, and it, you're absolutely right. And I think that this is something that will be um, revealed in a sort of more precise way, in a, in a more specific way in four or five years, 10 years by historians, because I don't think we see the ripple effects of this kind of behavior. If you think that Boris Johnson is going to have an easy time, um, you know, creating a Brexit with a deal and not sort of ending on a no deal Brexit and Irish backstop and all this stuff, his association, his meeting with Donald Trump, his, you know, interaction with Donald Trump, the existence of Donald Trump chiming in on this debate it ruins everything. <laughs> it, it, it has a negative effect on everything. The ASAP Rocky thing, it was like, do not throw a life preserver made of cement to the drowning person because that's what you're doing. You know, I mean, it is, I don't need your help because your help is hurting. And you see that in international relations in every way. No one takes this man seriously. When large kind of meetings of, you know, a G8, whatever it might be, United Nations, we have been contemptuous of for, for many years and don't do a hell of a lot with, besides, to Trump's point, foot a very large bill. These interactions are very difficult at the moment. And you can talk to diplomats and you can talk to people in the State Department and say that it is really not quantifiable right now of how bad this man has made our lives, how difficult. It, I mean, it was pointed out today that our ambassador to Denmark used to be on the bold and the beautiful. Hmm. She was a soap actress. And it's very unfair to me to say that she uh, doesn't have any qualifications, but I'm going to say she has no qualifications. If you look down her CV, <laughs> she knows nothing. And yeah, this has been a, a thing that Barack Obama did to everybody does. They hand out these ambassadorships to, you know, donors and nice. I mean, I met the ambassador to Sweden that was appointed by George W. Bush. He was like a bundler and he was a friend of Bush's. He was a very smart and nice guy. And I met him on a number of occasions. Um, but the thing is, is that we were living in an era in which George Bush was not going to offend the entire country of Sweden every fucking week. Right. So the ambassador didn't really have that much of a role beyond having a cocktail party. When you have a man who's kicking the sand in the face of every world leader, it's seemingly every world leader, with probably the exception of Viktor Orban. You have to, this is true. You ha and you have embassy staffs and people, uh, you know, doing America's bidding in these countries. And half of them are, you know, morons that were friends of Donald Trump in New York City. It's not a recipe for, for a great American foreign, foreign policy and great relations between countries who we need good relations with. And has the, has and he actually ever said anything negative about Duterte? No, he said no. positive. He loves yeah. Duterte. Yeah. He's like, a, you know, I wish I could throw people out of helicopters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the ripple effect also comes. I, I spent the part of this week with Justin Amash in, uh, in uh, Michigan near Grand Rapids, his district. He was doing a bunch of meet and greets. And he hits this point over and over again about uh, how the culture, the political culture has been degrading for a while. That precedes Donald Trump. It's not a cause of Donald Trump. Um, and it's hard to fix. Uh, it starts with actually being nice to each other mm. and recognize that you can have political disagreements and still not decide that that person is a, a horribly bad person. They, they mm -hmm. have a different belief and you can just sort of talk about that. And he was sort of demonstrating that because he was going into largely Democratic areas and they're given uh, earfuls on uh, on guns, especially. Mm -hmm. uh, but he brought up the point, and I think he's right about this. Uh, and this is, again, something that we won't know the effects of next year. Uh, it's more like 5, 10, 20 years is what happens when the political culture just becomes 
smash mouth of like, I need to get the presidency because the presidency accrues all this power ever more every single year. Uh, I need to get the presidency because the presidency is the ultimate tool. It's the ultimate thing that people pay attention to. And as soon as I get that tool, I'm going to punish my enemies who are the guys who had the presidency before me. Um, the culture is a lot more uh, uh, smash mouth right now. And you can just sort of see it and you can see Democrats uh, can't wait to get in there and start like absolutely punishing people. Uh, it, and that's where the effect will happen. Does this, does this become kind of a, a permanent status of American politics? Because screw those guys. I mean, we're at, at this time of incredibly heightened negative polarization and everyone feels traumatized. And when you're, when, when you're in that kind of clench, um, you're not going to get to the Camille Foster ideal of we had this gross president, so let's defrock power. No one's talking about that. That thing didn't happen. That's true. The presidency wasn't, hasn't been, unfortunately, um, uh, disfigured or, 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 or shown to be so bad that we need to reduce the power. Yeah, of it. I, was, I, I was hoping for some degradation there. The it degradation happened. happened, but the, 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 the people's response to it was like, oh, yeah. then we need the presidency. Yeah. I mean, think about uh, Trump after the market had already tanked based on his comments uh, today, uh, announced on Twitter, and we're recording this on Friday, announced uh, in the evening uh, on Twitter, obviously, that uh, he's going to increase uh, tariffs on China from 25% to 30% on mm-hmm, this book, mm-hmm. and he's going to, uh, uh, from 10% to 15% on another tranche. So good luck, uh, people uh, selling futures between now and and, uh, and Monday. Um, uh, but People who oppose that, which right now, by public opinion, are like all the Democrats. They suddenly like free trade. Um, but even some Cap- capital- capitalism is very popular right now. Some so. few Republicans will occasionally talk about that. They could do something about this. The Congress has the power to do something about this. But uh, uh, Mitch McConnell doesn't allow any of the bills that are aimed at um, uh, restraining the president's ability just to willy nilly say, oh, uh, tariff, national security. Why not? Let's do this. Um, they're not using that power. So, uh, you know, like that, that makes the presidency ever more valuable and ever more the tool for the next person who comes around and who's going to use the power in the opposite way. Or in the case of Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, they'll certainly keep waging trade wars, but they'll uh, they'll talk about it in maybe different adjectives. I actually just read American Carnage by Tim Alberta. And if there's one recurring theme that comes up in the 600 pages, it's that people like Mitch McConnell and people who hold on to power in Congress, the reason they defer to presidents of their own party is because the president of their own party is always way more popular than they are. Mm. And they live and die by uh, supporting that president back home. You know, back home, they want to know why, you know, why, why'd you why'd you kick dirt in Trump's face? That can't happen. I think that's true. And I think it's also uh, not not only is he more popular, he's more on their minds. Mm-hmm. Like people don't think about their congressman because mm-hmm. we don't we have this overly presidential, overly national system right now, which sucks. Uh, but I was talking about this with, with Amash. His theory, which I want to believe in, but I don't necessarily, uh, is that if the Freedom Caucus would have stayed what it originally was, which was supposed to be a check on executive power and like to, to bust mm. balls on spending and on uh, 
on uh, civil liberties, NSA type stuff, if they would have early and often kept opposing Trump when he was doing opposable things, if Mitt Romney would have squawked every time Trump did something kind of that was uh, gross to his sense of, of things, if the people like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker, uh, and then also, you know, the sort of the conservative intellectual superstructure, if people would have called Trump out and opposed him in real time, if Rand Paul would have would have been stronger than he has been, um, then uh, that would have impacted that public opinion. Right. Then it wouldn't have a 90 percent Trump approval rating among conservatives. It'd be maybe 80 or 70 or even 60. Uh, and that would have changed the dynamic of the popularity at home. And, and you know, some people, Mosh included among them, are, are have been in the past. They win by bigger margins than Trump did in those districts. And so he's arguing that they could use their political capital. I'm now a lot more cynical about that. I just think we have such a national system. We don't. Um, from a journalistic point of view, talk about policy at all. Uh, and I don't mean that in a wonky way. I mean, just like, how does the government work and what results does it give? Um, you know, that's, we should, maybe we should drop that in, in addition to whatever people are yelling about on Twitter. Um, and the, all that combines to, um, you you know, people are going to line up with their tribe and going to fight for it and, or not fight for it. And it's going to be damnably hard for uh, people to make an impact if they oppose the president of their own party um, while he's the president. Um, they'll be roadkill. Um, so. That just shut everybody up. To this. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, um, I was just, uh, I opened Facebook, um, to see, oh my. um, that, yeah, I don't, you're, you're I, the I don't one. I haven't do done it. that in two years. <laughs> I don't usually do that. Um, but to see that some of my Facebook friends are cheering the death of David Koch. Oh, uh, yes. David Koch died. Have a great weekend. Exclamation point. Um, that's, uh, oh. some blue check mark, uh, is a lot of that. Every time somebody like, dies, I remember yeah. when Christopher Hitchens died. I hope you I hope the wrong politics or the wrong his brother meets him soon was uh, yeah. was one. Uh, Who was that? I saw that too. That was uh, an actor. Oh, that was uh, the guy Perlman. from yeah, it was the guy Ron from Beauty Perlman. and the Beast. Yep, you remember mm. that? Oh yeah, oh, he, was, yeah. Like, he played that busted guy who got the hot <laughs> got Linda Hamilton. Yeah. And uh, he he looked kind of like a lion. Yeah, yeah. I, he's uh, he knows a lot about politics. I imagine there's some some similar stuff going on on the other side. I see Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, undergoes more cancer treatment. At the top of the, uh, yeah. the the Drudge website. This this, this knows uh, no party. No, it certainly um, doesn't. And uh, but I re I remember it specifically from people that. I liked and had relationships with or, or people that I knew or people that I respected. And every time you always, you always see this and, mm. you know, Twitter, Twitter does um, bring out the worst in people. But then I, I say that it's, you know, commonly said, Twitter. I don't think that's actually true. Now that I say it, that Twitter brings out. The no, worst I just people. think it exposes people that are bad. Mm. People that are pieces of shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think I'd, you know, a guy who could wish or, or celebrate the death of David Koch because of his politics and, what people believe to be his pernicious influence on American politics. Mm -hmm. We celebrate that. It's not a guy you want to have. A I think that's with. a, I think that's actually <laughs> just, a really useful distinction. I'm, I, I started reading uh, Kevin Williamson's new book mm -hmm. uh, not too long ago, which is, is a lot to do with a similar topic. And I myself uh, mm -hmm. wondered a lot about the role of social media and making our culture more crass, et cetera. And, Kevin has a very particular perspective on this. Kevin, who has uh, since quit Twitter and had uh, a pretty nasty public uh, fallout with the Atlantic um, after some things he said on Twitter became public. But it's certainly a machine that rewards having crass perspectives and being particularly nasty to people who your tribe disfavors.
Um, so there's also a genre of people who, uh, when somebody sort of on their tribe dies and they scold everybody who's kicking dirt on the grave, mm-hmm. but there's a tweet from the past of uh-huh. them doing the exact same thing to the other tribe. Yeah. That's a, that's a recurring. Uh, my it's my, also, my it's rule of thumb a, is if you actually are a murderer or you like promoted the murder and death of other people, I may in fact cheer your death. Um, I just don't remember David having ever done uh, anything like that. I refer to him on a first name basis, almost as though we were friends. He did talk to me once in a context that I won't go into any detail about. Why? Uh, he said something nice to me. So well, that's nice. Yeah, it is nice. Did he and then a you billion for, dollars for fell out of his pocket? <laughs> it fell out of his pocket. He didn't notice. I picked yeah. it up and then he uh, accused you of stealing it. And great. then you personally no. burned the rainforest. <laughs> he winked at me afterwards. <laughs> then he ascended to heaven. Well, it's also I, I've been known to do a few anti obits uh, here and there, mm. um, <laughs> and it's usually to say I hope the distinction is is clear. Uh, like uh, grappling with people's uh, ideas mm-hmm. and not wishing that their brother would die. <laughs> I never do that. I I'm think like, there's, a, there's a fair and reasonable <laughs> distinction there. Yeah. Like yeah, someone yeah, dies yeah. and in a moment where everyone is talking about how wonderful they are and their saintliness and their perfection, perhaps it's, it's not terrible, especially from a journalistic standpoint to, Interrogate to write a piece about the things that they've done and the ideas that they've held that were perhaps less than wonderful. Yeah, interrogate the ideas of Uh Hugh Coke and his influence. Absolutely, Um, that's totally fine. I mean, you know, when Margaret Thatcher died, there was a concerted effort, and I think it succeeded to get. what song was it to number one? It was something about the witch being dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Uh, uh. Um, And a celebration of somebody's death. Okay. I mean, if they were, the people believe that Margaret Thatcher was responsible for the deaths of people, whether it be the Falklands War or her economic policies, it's pretty kind of weird and tenuous. I mean, every leader, when one of their colonial possessions is invaded, maybe would have to respond. I don't know. Michael Moynihan <laughs> defends colonialism. Uh, 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 hey, uh, on the fifth column. hey, I'm a big fan of the Falklands remaining British. <laughs> uh, you know, that's just my own personal view. But, but, um, Cancel him. But no, I mean, I wrote something about Reuben Carter, Hurricane Carter after she died. Mm. God, people got mad about that. Mm-hmm. Like, can't you respect the man? It's like, well, I don't because I think he's a murderer. And that's, <laughs> I don't tend to not respect murderers. I don't. And I think it's slightly different. Margaret Thatcher saying, I don't know, what should we do about the fact that the Argentinian fascist junta has taken over a uh, island occupied by British sovereign citizens yeah. versus let's shoot all these people in a bar and then take their money and empty the till. Well, he didn't empty the till. But th- that, I, I think there's a distinction with a very big difference there. But I got a lot of shit for that. That was one that I remember. I got a lot of shit for a couple of them. Yeah, I can only hear Bob Dylan singing in my head, so it's I great didn't hear song, any of the rest of what you it's said. A great, it's a great yeah. song. It's it is factually wrong on every major point, <laughs> um, but it's a great song. Um, yeah. And and Hurricane Carter yeah. uh, is um, was unfortunately uh, guilty. That's exactly so, what I would expect. And he wasn't you to think remotely as a the man. number one. Uh, he was not. He was not the, the, to the heavy. It was, I think he's a middleweight. Middleweight right? crown. Yeah. Number one contender. Uh, and he did have an idea about what shit was about to go down. <laughs> to finish that couplet because he uh, went into a, a bar. And uh, and shot it up. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, that that movie, I mean, was less than factually accurate. Oh, I mean, it's, um, even Carter's defenders think yeah. it's kind of kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, and you know, Dylan does the same thing. He's like he wanted to re- ride a horse on a trail. Uh, but he sat like Buddha in his ten foot cell. It's like, yeah. Well, what the hell? You know, we, we talked about this. What, the the Dylan movie that just came out, the Scorsese movie. Ruben Carter is all over that movie. Oh yeah. Like, well, what? it's because it, it's because it's the Rolling Thunder tour. 
and it, it, the record is Desire. Yeah. And they play it, and Carter, there, there's a part in which, you know, he meets Carter uh, once. But but keep in mind that I don't believe, and I, every time I say I don't believe and I ask somebody to fact check me, they always do, and I'm always wrong, just for the record. Um, I don't believe he ever really played Hurricane much after that, mm-hmm. if at all. It's just, it's just weird in this documentary that has updated he, modern interviews. They provide no new context. Yeah, well, they, I mean, uh, Carter's dead, yeah. so they do have like an archival interview, I think, with him in that. Yes, but they so, have a yeah. current Dylan interview. And the current Dylan, which he talks about Carter mm-hmm. in, you know, the thing that's funny about it is he's lying about everything else in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> that's, I thought stuff. that too. But yeah, I mean, that's a, f- a fascinating case. And um, um, I did, t- we did talk about it at one point having the people who made a podcast about this, two British um, reporters mm. from the BBC mm. who are um, sports journalists and did a uh, 13 part documentary, a podcast documentary on Reuben Carter that, um, it was bad that I had the the Apple Watch at the time because he kept on telling me that my heart rate was too high. <laughs> so I was like, Come on, guys, this is not right. That uh, might be an interesting special dispatch. Well, uh, if anybody wants to hear that, they want to do it. Um, they said they'd do it, yeah. and I like respect the guys. And they did some actually really interesting stuff, and they mm-hmm. found some interesting material. Their conclusions, I think, are wildly wrong, and, uh-huh. I, and they make, I think, some pretty basic mistakes in it because it's been a case that's fascinated me for a while. And there's, I did talk to another journalist uh, who covered it for a New Jersey paper at the time Mm -hmm. who has a website devoted to the truth Mm -hmm. about Hurricane Carter, Mm -hmm. which I think is hosted on GeoCity. Black background with red and yellow letters. Flashing guilty on it. This could be a Ben Price, uh, this could be a Ben Price poll. Should we do a Reuben Carter uh, special dispatch? It's pretty nerdy, (laughs) but the case is really interesting. And it obviously was a case that that became big because of Dylan and because of there was some other people agitating for it. And um, people thought it was like this is what race relations in a place like Patterson, New Jersey was, uh, you know, indicative of race relations uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem is it just wasn't a good test case Mm -hmm. because um, if, if Carter wasn't guilty and John Artis wasn't guilty, I would be, I, I don't, who, who did, it? I don't know, yeah. but it's a, it's a pretty interesting case. Um, and, and you learn and they have to confront some really ugly things about him. Ruben Carter was the sainted man of Denzel Washington's retelling is a pretty ugly character, a uh, pretty nasty person, beat up a female supporter of his who was raising money for his case, um, which they kind of run by and suggest maybe didn't happen, but it mm-hmm. did. Um, there's a lot of stuff in, that's interesting in the case. I mean, if I should talk to these guys, um, it would require, I guess, listeners to listen to their podcast, mm. um, which is worth it, uh, but it's wrong. So, you know, what would not make a very good special dispatch podcast, me walking around the streets, bumping into, uh, people who are at tables with red fabric across them, uh, advocating for socialism, uh, which happened to me in what? park slope the other day. Oh, um, boy. and They're I had a, a nasty, a nasty public argument with these gentlemen, um, telling them that they were, if they ever, if their program ever won, that they would get millions of people killed and they would probably send me to the gulags or murder me. Um, and <laughs> it might be a bit of an overstatement, but go like ahead. Yeah. And yeah. It, was a, it was a genuine screaming match with other strangers getting involved. But, but the reason I got involved is because people kept walking up to the table and like taking their material and having these pleasant conversations with them as if this is, this is totally fucking fine. This is fine. And it was at that moment that I realized that here in Brooklyn, 
New York. Well, in Manhattan, we all live in various parts of Brooklyn. Um, yeah, I guess not you, Fisher, Fisher Queens. Queens. Yeah, but the rest of us do. It's the yeah. appendage of Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah, but but I ex- I suspect that this same malady afflicts your neighbors. I think. Well, he's AOC are, adjacent. There are a lot of really crazy people. Yeah. In the city. Would who, you be who believe like actual conspiracy theories yeah, and have grotesque ideas oh, yeah, about history that are complete, that cannot be substantiated? Of course. I, I, this is how, you've just figured this when out. When I asked them about the failures of socialism and Marxism, and they did not deny being socialists and Marxists, we're, we're Leninists. Um, Wait, someone said they're a Leninist? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm sorry. They're Trotskyites. Sorry. Oh, that would yeah, be, I apologize. That would be, <laughs> but still, well, but still, yeah, still. The, the notion that, that there was a body right. count associated yeah. with their ideas yeah. is something that they found offensive. Yeah. This is ridiculous. Well, Trotsky is a pretty interesting example because uh, remember that Trotsky uh, uh, commandeered the Red Army uh, during, uh, during and after the Revolution and in the Civil War hmm. when they were fighting the whites and a lesser known thing, the Greens. <laughs> they weren't the Greens of today. Mm. Um, but uh, well, they what, kind of were. But. Well, yeah. Well, it, well no, they were. They were, opposing, they were opposing the Bolsheviks. Yeah. But what they did, uh, and what Trotsky um, uh, had and, and did on his watch, is pretty is, is pretty offensive. But the thing is, is what all of these people do. And if you're arguing with people like this, always remember this: they will say that they're Trotsky. Sometimes they'll say they're Leninists. That, that, that those are the ones that are want to go out on a limb a little bit. But the idea of Trotsky is this: he didn't sur- survive long enough, and he had the right enemies, so I can be one of his. Right. If he had stayed around, it would have been the exact same result. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, can't be a Stalinist because Stalinist, yeah, Stalin you know, oversaw show trials and, and the doctor's plot and uh, massacring Polish officers in Katyn Forest and any number of gruesome, his gruesome legacy. But Trotsky left and was killed by agents of Stalin. Right. Um, so therefore, he's a good guy. And then we'll say we're trots. Hmm. That's what the trots always did was mm-hmm. because they say, no, 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 we're the good guys. Right. We got out. Someone didn't like us. It's like, yeah, well, I mean, you lost the power struggle, but had you won, the result probably hmm. wouldn't have been exactly the same, but it would have been fairly similar. <laughs> at, at one point I asked the guys, I said, so at some point you, you seize control and you know, you're in charge and I just don't like your program. I think I ought to be able to keep the things that I have earned and I'd like to keep them for myself and my family. What do you do with me? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what do you do with people who break the law? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We actually, the- they, they started out saying, well, we think the program will actually work out really great for you. Yeah, but we are the law. And yeah. I said, no, no, I don't want any part of your program. Yeah. And it becomes, what do you do with people who break the law? Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah they're, 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 they, they are the law. Yeah. What do we do with a problem? Give us your money. No. The, the they, Negro, the Negro problem. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> my, my Negro problem. Fucking circle. And yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's funny to, 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 I don't know if you'd be any more offended if those people were canvassing and setting up their, um, I would be less offended to be honest, uh, setting up their, their, uh, tables in a place like, you know, uh, East New York or a place like the Bronx or tough places. There's nice areas of the Bronx, Mm. Um, uh, like a a rougher or a poorer neighborhood in the Bronx. I find it uh, particularly funny when they're doing it in Park Slope where I cannot live. Um, (laughs) I I literally cannot live there. And perhaps perhaps neither, neither can they. I mean, I didn't. Well, get the, I, I mean, didn't get the they know that they're going to get a they get a warm reception in a place where I'll people buy co-op. their groceries yeah. at a fucking the Park Slope food co op, which literally has its own show trials. <laughs> a friend of mine's <laughs> husband was caught shirking. He was a wrecker oh. as the because uh, you have to do your shifts, and they have a newspaper. 
can't remember the name of the newspaper, but it's 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 something like it's something like uh, the Phnom Penh Gazette or the, <laughs> the 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 Daily Khmer or something. But they had they called him out in the newspaper. Hmm. It's like a it's like a mini little mad society there. <laughs> they did a thing where they were boycotting. Actually, Samantha B. The one thing I funny thing actually she did was she did something about the boycott the BDS movement at the boycott, divest, and sanction movement where they didn't have any Israeli products, I don't think. No, snap, uh, the soda stream. They had, they had a soda stream and that was yeah. it. I yeah. think it was only, and they were like, we cannot uh, do, uh, have, they wanted to boycott uh, Israeli products in the, um, this was a, a problem, uh, a, a solution in search of a problem because mm. they, they had this contentious vote and the rest of it. And it was like what it was like watching the early days of like the Prague Spring play out in miniature uh, because the bad guys won and the people who <laughs> wanted to be free just shut their mouths or left or like went over the border and tried to, you know, get a timeshare in Monaco or something or in you know, <laughs> a lesser uh, shitty communist country. But, yeah, it's funny that this always happens in, in these little these little places. And, you know, it's always the, it's always the women Men too have a different description, but the women are always the ones that have those uh, uh, clogs with the backs on them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, like clogs, they, but they have like a full back. They're like a clog that has a, a back on it. I don't know how to describe uh-huh. it. I have low blood sugar uh-huh. and I've been drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. The the uh, the Park Slope uh, Co-op's newsletter is the Line Waiters Gazette. The Line Waiters ah! Gazette. Yes. 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 That is great. Yeah. Yeah. The Woody Guthrie Memorial Columnist from the Line Waiters Gazette. Yeah. No, it's great. I think it's at least one employee of reason whose name I shall not divulge, who's a member of he the absolutely Absolutely is, and I remember talking with him oh, often yeah, about Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Trading wow. shifts. Yeah. That's huh. amazing. Huh. Yeah. So anyway, out the cool they, have the, they, they all have the, the, the clogs at the back on them. Some, <laughs> some fucking listener is going to know what I'm talking about if they've made it this far. They'll be like, yeah, no, I know those, those clogs. I want to know what their name is. There's got to be some festive it's, sw- it's, Swedish German uh, name. Oh, the name of the, the clogs. clogs. Well, there is this, there's, this, there's Swedish ones that are... Are popular, but I don't remember the name of them. I don't want to denounce the Swedes who get mad at me. You know, we, if you look at the the, uh, the our listeners, mm-hmm. the numbers, and we have these great numbers and these great analytics. <laughs> the best numbers. The, the best numbers. <laughs> we have the, the best, best numbers. The, no, but we have these great. I meant I meant great software, and it is all the English speaking countries. The top four is uh, you know America, uh, Canada, then the UK and Australia, and number five is Sweden. Yeah. So we have a lot of Swedish listeners. So I try not to offend. The Swedes. Um, tell them something in Swedish. I, I don't want to tell them anything in Swedish. <laughs> they talk. Right. Well, we're, we, we, I think we've gone too far, Matt. I think it's time to end this disaster. Okay. All right. Should we go? Yeah. Let's, let's go. go. I'm tired. Good. Bye. Go. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.